0: Welcome to the Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks! The Big Picture is on WCPT A twenty, and now here's your host, Edwin Eisenbrack.
1: Hello, everyone, and happy New Year to you. We begin again: a new year, a new Congress. A new election cycle, but look, novelty, newness, the sense of embarking on a voyage for the first time, that's an illusion for the young. We old veterans just see more of the same, the long, the unending struggle for a more just world. Against, you know, pretty amazingly stiff odds, Americans everywhere fought and won battles against those who would replace our democracy with some other form of government they never dared to name. In the face of deniers, we preserved the integrity of elections. Under attack by a partisan and political Supreme Court, we affirmed our belief that government is about protecting our rights, not taking our rights. To those who would tear government down by pretending that elections are really only about politics, we said no, Governing is real work and we need it get to get it done by serious people. I am so proud of our work last year. <laughs> but as this year began and I watched Kevin McCarthy and what remains of the GOP capitulate to its MAGA base, a collapse affirmed late last night, late last night, the anniversary of um, the battle of January 6th, I was reminded of a timely truth about our timely, timeless truth about our democracy. On November 4th, 1938, Franklin Roosevelt said this, I venture, that's fun for me to actually quote Franklin Roosevelt on radio, his great medium. I venture, he said, the challenging statement that if American democracy ceases to move forward as a living force, seeking day and night by peaceful means to better the lot of our citizens, fascism will grow in strength in our land. Yesterday, the second anniversary of the January 6th battle, a coup d'etat in our capital during the transition from one president to the next. Given how close we came to losing everything, how close we still are It's worth thinking harder about Roosevelt's challenging statement. The victory of the MAGA based in the GOP confirmed on this anniversary does more than demonstrate that we are still in the midst of an insurrection. We are still in the midst of a fight for our democracy. Does more than just tell us that. It also explains the nature of that fight. The election of Kevin McCarthy, after all, is not a capitulation of the center to a more conservative right. Many of the most conservative members of the House were in McCarthy's corner all along. It is instead a capitulation of those who believe the House should govern to those who believe it should not. And recalling Roosevelt, if we fail to better the lot of our citizens by governing well, It is clear what will grow in strength in our land. It is a terrible thing, but we must see it for what it is. The end of democracy, the growth of a new fascism, is the goal of the majority party in the United States House of Representatives, and that's where I start this year. Look, the core to which the GOP capitulated is an election-denying anti-democracy movement There is simply not a majority within the GOP to uphold the oaths they swore. Too many of them raised their hands and lied. They will not preserve and protect the Constitution. Never forget, hundreds of them, those same people, hundreds of them voted to overturn the presidential election just two years ago. This is what we're up against. Now, at the same time, this... MAGA, GOP, I don't know what to call it, cancer on our democracy, this, certainly these people who do not believe in our democracy, as this was on display in the House of Representatives, President Biden, Vice President Harris, Transportation Secretary Buttigieg, as well as Senate GOP leader like Mitch McConnell, traveled the country to tout the benefits of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And there we see it. The president is on the road reminding Americans that, dem- and even McConnell, let's, let's call it what it is, um, cause he's a conservative, I, but I think one who believes in democracy. Um, I, then the only reason I doubt it is the Supreme Court. We we'll can talk about that later, but the president is on the road reminding Americans that Democracy is a living force and it is seeking and succeeding by peaceful means to better the lot of our citizens. The now concluded 117th Congress with its tiniest of Democratic majorities and facing massive and well-funded attacks rose to the occasion, giving us not just the infrastructure bill that they're out uh, campaigning on, talking about, reminding Americans about today, but laws to fight climate change, to reboot American manufacturing, particularly of high-end computer chips, to improve healthcare and to lower its cost, to protect marriage, and much more that we've previously discussed on this show. They also succeeded in shoring up the independence of the judiciary, which has been under sustained attack by the right for decades. And in state after state, though, sadly not in every state, we saw similar examples of vibrant democracies bettering our lives. So given this dichotomy, the controlling party of the House of Representatives determined to grind government to a halt, to do nothing to better our lives, because doing nothing encourages this fascism to grow in America as FDR said, um, versus going out as Joe Biden is doing and reminding everyone that our democracy is vibrant and can do great things, in fact, has recently done great things. We, we, you and I, we need to take every opportunity to remind America what our democracy can do to better our lives. The House, they will do all they can to prove it can't work. So this challenge of FDRs is perpetual. He told us that if we stop moving forward, the democracy dies. And this is not an equal burden. Those of us who love democracy have to prove that it works. We have to make it work. We have to be that vital force that betters our lives. The detractors, the other side, has a much easier task. They simply have to delay, distract, change the subject, go for the gutter, opting for an easy kind of cruel politics, you know, rather than the hard work of governing. And so the 118th Congress begins as hostage to those forces. It will be another year of hard work, both political and governmental. Roosevelt, again, he called democracy a living force. And, you know, we need to understand that, um, well, this is going to be the subject of a lot of this show, but let me say that I understand what he meant by a living force to be this, the sum of what each of us does with our lives, the sum of what each of us does with our lives, not some fantasy-soaked, mass-produced idea of what America is, not as... um, the totalitarians around the world tell you in the, in the voice of the great leader is the spirit of the people, right? Um, Xi Jinping stands for the Chinese people. Uh, Mussolini was speaking for the Italian people. Nonsense, right? That, that idea is not democracy. That is not a vital force. It is each of us our lives, making decisions collectively to make us a better place. We. That's it. It's just us, you, me, and millions of our neighbors. That's the big picture. And it means that American democracy is in your hands, your hands, and your neighbors. And I'm optimistic because I know that the great majority of us. We'll use those hands for good. And that's how I want to start uh, this new year with you. We're going to take a first break now. And when we come back, I'm going to be joined by Tiffany Muller, who we talked to last year uh, uh, a little bit. And I'll tell you about her on the other side. Stay tuned.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, everybody. Now, um, you know the themes I'm teeing up for this conversation today and throughout the year. Um, And I am delighted to be joined. And my first guest for the year be Tiffany Muller, who is Executive Director of N Citizens United. We we last spoke on this show, I I think it was hmm, October of 2021. So a little more than a year ago. And since then, Uh, The disease of dark money in our political system has further corrupted the Supreme Court, has bought members of Congress, has distorted democracy at the state level. It's truly awful, but we are not helpless, as last year's victories have shown. Uh, Tiffany, welcome back.
2: Well, thanks so much for having me back on, Edwin. It's a pleasure to be here with you today.
1: Um, I've been thinking, you know, what I wanted my first topic and my first guest of 2023 to be about. And I wanted to raise a question that I think will be with us for the entire year, you know, to flag a challenge we need to face, not just today, but going forward and something that we'll have to come together to overcome. So let me begin the year just by asking you about one thing. Leonard Leo. (laughs) <laughs> Leonard, Leonard, Leo, can you can you, um, in your words, tell everybody why you laughed, why that's on my mind and what it's going to mean for us this year?
2: Yeah, I I, uh, I assume most of your listeners have over the past uh, decade or two heard about the Koch brothers and understand how they manipulated our political system and uh, policy outcomes by spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of, of dollars. Um, well, what they might not have heard about is this other guy, Leonard Leo, who is head of the Federalist Society and who helped come up with the strategy to stack the Supreme Court with conservatives that would overturn Roe, that would undermine our democracy, that would undermine worker power. Um, and spending hundreds of millions of dollars of dark money, he created the strategy that did that, that created the captured court that we now have that is far more concerned with just being another arm of the Republican Party than it is with actually delivering to the American people. So we've already seen what he can do and what he believes and how frightening uh, the results of his work can be. And now uh, what's even more scary is that he just got a one point six billion dollar—that's billion with a B—dark money contribution to continue and expand his work. It's the right. largest,
1: courtesy of a guy from Illinois.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah. And courtesy mm-hmm. of like some strange, some strange maneuvering, right, including some potential yep. uh, foreign money. Um, but it's it's and only through an IRS filing was this found out about at all. And with $1.6 billion, he can continue to build and expand the infrastructure that he has created. And he actually said in an interview not that long ago, his goal is no longer as simple as restructuring the court. He wants to restructure our society. And by that, he means he wants to attack things that he views as liberal um, and that empower people. And uh, he wants to take us in my opinion,
1: take us backward. And it's really, really frightening. And just so we're, because backwards is, um, it, it doesn't, it isn't clear enough, I think, to say take us backwards, because he's really not just focused on taking us socially backwards, but to an era, I mean, backwards to me is Jim Crow. It's an era where we did not have a democracy for everybody. And he and the Kochs, And others like him have been clear about this they do not think people with low incomes should be allowed to vote because they might take their money and put it to public use it is an anti-democratic movement to its core um, uh, which uses race-based tropes to fool people into supporting it
2: and and one step i agree with absolutely everything you just said and even one step further it's an anti-government regulation movement as well, right? They don't want totally the right. government to be able to say, we can't have anti-discrimination laws on our books. or And they don't want the government to even be able to say, we're going to enforce anti-pollution laws so that you, your kids have clean air and clean water. Um, and much of this is so that they can continue to profit in their for-profit companies like with the cokes with their oil and gas uh, business but it's also about only certain people get to have power and voice in our democracy in their vision and we know that that means that uh, that That it isn't a democracy that's right that's right that it isn't a democracy that uh, we're going back to uh, white
1: landowners I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but it was such a sort of shocking to hear only some people should have a say in our democracy. That did that get encompassed perfectly? Because, of course, if only some people have a say, what is it?
2: Democracy anymore. And that's exactly what they're trying to create.
1: So the era you're talking about, the one they want to go back to from a business perspective, we lived in it in the 1920s. For those of you who are sort of paid attention to law, the Lochner era was what it was called. And that was when companies could do whatever they want. And the, the thinking about the Constitution was. It's private property. The owners can, can, it doesn't matter. Workers don't have any rights. They can walk away and go work somewhere else. I mean, you're not, you're not enslaved to your company, but that you, you can be treated any way the company wants to treat you. No worker safety issues. Can't do that. Nope. No, uh, public health stuff. Nope. Can't do that. Can't make a company, uh, um, make products that are safe. Nope. The market will take care of that. That's this view that it absolutely is entirely up to the owner. 100% of everything is up to the owner, and there is no obligation to a bigger picture or to each other. Cruel
2: and there, or vision of the world. It, it is a cruel vision of the world, and it directly, it, back to your original point and what you kind of started the show off on around the dark money, um, I mean, the other piece of that, is, <laughs> we saw this play out 100 years ago, was that those same Corporate oligarchs then bought and controlled our political system, right? And I often think about the Copper Kings in Montana and how they were polluting the environment, um, treating their workers horribly, and using all of their money that they were getting by treating people so poorly to literally buy the state legislature. And um, this ended with them literally purchasing U.S. Senate seats. Which led to massive reform because people finally had had enough. But those same that same thing is happening today. We're seeing right. the the big corporate money. We're seeing the big special interests. We're seeing the biggest wealthiest billionaires have the most say and the most control in our political outcomes, um, and then therefore our policy outcomes. So we we have as a country faced these tests before. Um, not in the exact same way, but we have faced these tests before and the people came together and demanded change. And that's the thing that always gives me the most hope, Edwin, is that I know that the people are with us. We all believe that we should all have voice and vote in our democracy, um, whether you're Republican, Democrat, independent. Uh, they None of us believe that just those with the most money should get to control our system. And I actually think it's reaching that same point where. We are going we are going to and we are starting to force change just by all coming together and demanding it.
1: Yeah, I I thought during during this wonderful uh, last year that we had that the uh, MAGA core of the Republican Party um, didn't lead to the dividing of America, but led to a massive coming together um, of people whose interest. They didn't care about politics, but they cared about reproductive choice or they didn't care about reproductive choice, but they cared about voting rights or they cared about civil rights most or you name it a thousand causes came together um because of the threat the giant threat that this um group that has now captured the uh, a major American political party posed to the country
2: yeah, I mean we should not in any way overlook what happened in November. Uh, It was historical. It was historic in terms of its precedent and it going against kind of what normally happens in a midterm where the party in power loses a bunch of seats. And there were all these predictions of the red wave and how bad it was going to be for Democrats. And yet Democrats gained a seat in the Senate Uh, They uh, they won and defended uh, key incumbent gubernatorial races across the country, including in really, really tough states like my home state of Kansas. Uh, We flipped four legislative chambers and, you know, the the House, while it did flip control from Democrats to Republicans, um, it was barely and far under any of the predictions. And I think a big part of that was a couple of fold number one voters understood what was at stake and they understood that our democracy was at stake because more than half of americans had an election denial candidate on the ballot they also understood our freedoms like our our reproductive freedoms were at Mm -hmm. stake and voters actually understood that those things are linked That the extremism that leads someone to take away a woman's fundamental right to choose and the extremism around overturning an election just to grab power uh, and usurp our democracy are actually linked together. And they came out. Not only did was turnout better than expected, but also we were able to persuade (laughs) swing voters Across the country, because they understood what was at stake if they if they didn't uh, vote for the Democratic Party in 2022.
1: Yeah, yep, yeah, it was an amazing, amazing um, <laughs> display. By I mean, I I don't want to underest undervalue the work that you and hundreds of organizations did in the last cycle. But at the end of the day, it was an ordinary American people who just said. Hey, I see what's going on. However, it was brought to me, I see it, and I don't like it. We have to do better. I thought but, it was a.
2: That is uh, one of the things about doing this work, and I don't want to tell your listeners how many years I've been doing this work, but it's been a little while. is that The, <laughs> me voters, <too>. tend to, <laughs> the voters are the ones who tend to, uh, to re energize my faith in the system. Right. Because you're absolutely right. We all worked really, really hard. And uh, my team at In Citizens United, we were proud to get up every single day and fight for our democracy and try to make sure voters knew what was at stake. But at the end of the day, it really was about voters turning out, voters making the choice and voters talking to their friends and family about what was important to them. At the end of the day, it was them making those decisions and those choices. And that that gives me a lot of hope moving forward.
1: It should give everybody listening hope. And you're going to need that hope because it is another challenging year. I mean, let's let's um, let's not forget the hope and I'll come back to optimism before we're done. But (laughs) I I there's a low comedy and I wish it were just funny, but it isn't um, going on around a, a man named George Santos um, and mm-hmm. you should probably tell everybody a little bit about that. But what, I mean, it isn't just that he's a liar. It's that it's going to lead to some changes in rules that are really problematic.
2: Yeah, I mean, everything about the Santos story is, is troubling and concerning and horrifying. And every day it seems like it gets worse and worse. And it really speaks to you know, how Republicans have allowed a culture of corruption to really permeate their party. Right. He's clearly a serial liar um, who uh, and made up almost everything (laughs) uh, about his life and in the campaign. Um, But yet none of the Republicans are calling on him to resign for lying to their voters. No, they're actually defending him. Um, and one of the things that we know is that the Republicans one of the first rules they're going to be putting up is to gut the office of congressional ethics um, the very office that would be in investigating Santos and we need to make sure that we have strong ethics and have strong agencies who can continue to enforce ethics and rules and accountability. Um, you know I think it even goes beyond just the corruption and dishonesty I think, uh, Some of what he did during the campaign was outright illegal as well. And so both the money stuff, exactly the money stuff. I think it's actually just outright breaking the law, too.
1: Yep, yep, yep. So I think, you know, the Justice Department um, still works more slowly than the rest of us would like, but it's still working. And maybe we'll get him that way. But your point, this man ran for Congress, lied about everything, absolutely everything. Republicans don't care because he's a vote. None of it matters. Um, but they have to, in order to keep them there in Congress, a place that they are trying to make not work, they are going to gut ethics laws. I, 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 I think voters, taxpayers, residents everywhere, they, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about the difference between politics and governing. Governing is hard work and, it, and, and you do it well, you make everybody's lives better. Right. Um, politics is is can be hard work, but it really is a means to governing. Well, uh, at least for us, um, I, I, it, when you do things like gut the ethics rules, um, make Congress grind to a halt. All you're doing in governing is making um, is stopping the forward movement of government, which makes people cynical, which opens them up to autocracy. That, that, that's just the path
2: very bad. Yes, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. I mean, most people in America uh, want to not think about politics or um, the United States Congress nearly as much as they've had to think about it in the last 5 years, right? They right. they kind of want their governing to be a little bit boring. They want it to do what it's supposed to do. And, you know, they want to they want to know that our government's going to do things like pay its bills and fulfill its obligations. And, you know, what they really want government to do is make their lives just a little bit easier. And instead, what we have seen is chaos and disruption from a party that isn't that is really in the throes of trying to overturn our democratic system. And we've seen the chaos play out over the last week. Um, and if we're already seeing this kind of chaos, what's going to happen when we are in a situation where we have to make hard decisions about spending bills or debt limit increases or fulfilling our obligations or national security measures? Um, so we do. You're absolutely right. And we all laugh a little bit about some of this stuff, but there is real, real danger in what we're. Seeing.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a feature, not a flaw. Of the Republican strategy to create chaos, and and That's it's right. very dangerous, very very dangerous. Um, um, dark money played a role in two races we lost in the last cycle. Um, one that I sort of uh, take personally because I worked very hard at the to make a different outcome, um, and that is, I think, and it's hard to be the worst senator in the United States Senate but we were not able to defeat Ron Johnson. Yes. Yeah. And and we couldn't stop J.D. Vance, both for similar reasons. And they're reasons that you have been fighting for a long time.
2: Right. And um, for your, I mean, first of all, Ron Johnson, I think is the worst and most corrupt senator in the Senate. And as I'm sure your listeners remember, he also was uh, the one who tried to deliver fake electors to Mike Pence. Um, and yet, despite all of that, the the dark money, the outside special interest came in. And despite the fact that uh, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who was the nominee for Senate in Wisconsin, was out raising Ron Johnson on a campaign level, the outside spending that we saw in that race, um, they just they just buried, the Republicans just buried the Democratic side. And what? most of that, to your point, is dark money. We're not sure who or where it actually comes from. Um, But you know who I can guarantee you knows where that money was coming from? Ron Johnson. I will guarantee yes. you he knows who is putting money into those uh, outside special interest groups. And what I want to know is what are they expecting from him now, right? What's the well, payoff
1: for them? Some of it, in fairness, is a payoff for what he already delivered because we know a big chunk of it came, for example, from the Uline family that got a tax break worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars from Ron Johnson. So it's paid to that's play. Exactly. Um, that that's exactly another, right. Another, he, he another <laughs> Illinois family. Cut <that> Bill. <laughs> Yes.
2: He put into that tax cut bill, a very specific tax cut that gave three of his donors something like a $200 million tax break mm-hmm. just for those three biggest donors. Yep. Um, so, so that's exactly right. And in yeah. Ohio, I mean, Tim Ryan ran a phenomenal campaign. He is authentically through and through Ohio and for the working people and. That um, standing up uh, to the big corporate special interests, and JD Vance was a—I mean, one—he's just—he's just a fraud. Repulsive. And <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: I was trying to you can just call it like it is. You. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and uh, and he the only reason he was able to be competitive and end up winning that race was because of the outside special interest money propping him up because his campaign was weak his fundraising was bad and um and you know that's what we saw play out across the country is these extremists election deniers who didn't have the support of the people who didn't who couldn't get support from everyday Americans who are willing to chip in five dollars or ten dollars to help their campaigns. And instead, these big billionaires or big uh, outside special interest groups would come in and prop them up and make them competitive. It wasn't even about you know, look, politics is about two candidates telling you who they are, what they believe in, what they're going to do. And in these cases, it wasn't about that at all. And we're seeing this more and more where 75 or 80 percent of the spending is coming from these outside special interest groups. Mm -hmm. The candidates just kind of sit back, try to run under the radar because they're trying to hide how extreme they really are. Thankfully, the American public in a lot of cases um, were able to overcome that and voted them out anyway. Uh, but in too many places, and Wisconsin and Ohio are definitely two of them, um, they were able to be successful.
1: Yeah, I have hope for Wisconsin, but Ohio is the land that democracy forgot. Hey, I'm talking with Tiffany Muller, head of uh, C- and Citizens United, and it's a pretty interesting conversation. So you want to want to stay through this short break that we have to take. Tiffany will be back in just a second.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, welcome back, and I'm talking with Tiffany Muller, the uh, president of N Citizens United, who's absolutely fabulous for lots of reasons, probably some of it because she began her life as a city council person and got to really work with people right where it matters and never lost that no matter what comes next. Tiffany, um, I have a couple other topics before we're done. Great. But they're I, all, I they're, love all they're all related. Sh- Sheldon Senator Sheldon Whitehouse came on the show last year and talked about the failure to pass the disclose act. Um, and I'm wondering if it's going to come up again. I'm wondering if it has a has a chance. I think the house won't ever do it, but maybe in light of the Sam Bankman-Fried scandal, it, it will see some progress. What do you think?
2: Well, for for everyone listening who doesn't uh, remember what the Disclose Act is, all this dark money we've been talking about—the um, way to clean that up and to make sure we can uh, trace the money back and hold uh, elected officials accountable and root out corruption—is to make sure we know where the money's coming from. And so, the Disclose Act would force transparency. Basically, if you spend more than $10,000 uh in any election then you have to report uh who your donors are. And it's pretty simple. If you want to help uh influence an election, we should know where the money's coming from. Um and it turns out like 80-90% of Americans agree with that and it is not a partisan issue. Republicans agree with that, Re- uh, Democrats agree with that, independents agree with that. The only place in the world this is partisan is up on Capitol Hill. And so Democrats have been fighting since the Citizens United ruling, all the way back in 2010, to pass the Disclose Act. Um, and they have—we've gotten close a few different times, um, but have never quite gotten there. But I think you're absolutely right that we're that we're going to see continued efforts and we're going to keep pushing. The problem is, is that you have. Uh, the, the House that dark money built, which is Kevin McCarthy's majority, and so it is going to be hard to overcome the House Republican um, opposition to this because they have benefited and their entire majority is owed to dark money. That being said, there we're going to keep trying and we're going to keep forcing it, and um, Senator Whitehouse is the biggest champion on this. And has done such an amazing job helping Americans and his colleagues understand how dark money, it's not just about what's being spent in campaigns, but to what we were talking about earlier, it's also about how it's stacked the Supreme Court. It's about how it's taking control of our federal regulatory agencies. It's about how it's influencing each and every piece of our political and policy system.
1: Yeah. So let's turn to that thought. I'm sorry to say it, that um, captured, it's a good word for it, illegitimate, another good word for it, Supreme Court. Um, I'm happy that the Electoral Count Act passed. I am, though, worried that it can come back to haunt us if this compromise, there's another good word for it, Supreme Court, moves forward, w- forward, moves backwards with <laughs> Moore versus Harper. And I think you could tell everybody, I mean, we talked about it a lot on the show last year, but it's a new year and who knows. Let's remind everybody about Moore versus Harper and uh, and how something as crazy as that got to the Supreme Court in the first place and why it should scare us to death.
2: Yeah, (laughs) this case is so radical and so fringe that, uh, you know, the Federalist Society I was just talking about uh, with Leonard Leo. This former head of the Federalist Society has even come out against uh, the theory around Morby Harper, <laughs> which is right. just uh, that tells everyone how radical it is. So this case is really first of all, it's a it's based on a redistricting case out of North Carolina um, and it is a fringe theory that's uh, called the independent state legislature theory, which basically argues that only state legislatures should have complete and unfettered control um, over our democracy. And they're saying specifically around redistricting, but the, the fear is, is that if it is applied to redistricting, it, it could also be applied to elections and to electoral votes. Uh, and or to, for instance, um, clearing up, you know, uh, issues after an election when you have to go to court and make sure that, you know, the ballots are being counted correctly. Basically, this theory goes so far that it would take governors and courts out of the process. Um, And the Supreme Court has to reject, reject this theory. It just it has to reject this theory, but should scare all of us is that there were at least four votes on the Supreme Court to hear the case in the first place,
1: right? Yes, four they votes. brought they they, they invited votes. it. They invited it in.
2: They invited exactly, it in exactly. Right. And so, um,
1: um, it, it's it would be the only time, right? Like, These these so-called originalists look at the arguments around the Constitution where the most important question that got asked a million times away is how do we balance power between executive, legislative and judicial, between federal and state governments? But now there's a theory that says, no, we're going to have on elections no balance of power at all, but give all of the power to one group, something that's so radically anti the American experiment in government. In, in democracy, but also in balance, that that it doesn't belong in in, in any room of people seriously talking about governance in America, and the, this Supreme Court invited it in.
2: Exactly, exactly, and you know we filed along with some other groups and Amicus brief, uh, calling on the court to re- reject it um, because we have to have. Uh, fair and equal representation, um, which we could never get if state legislatures were in charge of it. I mean, state legislatures so t- are some of the most gerrymandered maps that we have. Seen, right. Some of the most gerrymandered chambers that we have in the in our system
1: right now. And Tiffany, there's an example right in front of us, and it played out in Congress this the last few days. Fifteen members of the Ohio delegation tipping the balance from Democrat to Republican. Just went to Congress. They, they, they were sworn in uh, late last night. They all ran from districts. The Supreme Court of Ohio said were illegal. But the legislature ran over them as if Moore versus Harper were the law of the land and said the court doesn't matter. We're going to send them anyway. And they got away with it. Um, that would yeah. be the whole country if this law passes. If this, that's, if right. that's how the that's court right.
2: And the Supreme Court had a chance uh, in, in a case that was I think it was out of Wisconsin um, or maybe they combined Wisconsin and Maryland um, uh, to, to ban partisan gerrymandering. And they chose not to. And what we have seen since is uh, state legislatures across the country um, continuing to gerrymander their state maps. And what we also saw this time in map making was some really, really awful racial gerrymandering because with uh, the Supreme Court's blow to the Voting Rights Act um, through a couple of different cases, including Shelby, um, Shelby v. Holder, um, mm-hmm. they they were able to draw maps that diluted the power of black and brown voters across the country. Um, and you really have a country that's split in two with how it's handling redistricting. You have more states than ever using independent commissions, using independent maps and a fair process. Um, and you have, in some of those cases, the most fair maps that we've seen. And it actually helped in, in, in many states, and yet yeah, yes, in other states, Texas. Yeah, exactly, Michigan, Arizona. Uh, it, you know, we have we have some that used to be very gerrymandered that are that are better now because of because of that. And it's really because of the work of so many amazing organization and advocates, both on the ground and nationally, that have been fighting for that. And then, you know, you have other states, Texas, Ohio, Wisconsin, who have some of the worst maps we've ever seen.
1: Well, let's let, let's go back to where you began this, which is about the Supreme Court. Um, th- the series of 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 decisions they made, um, they gutted the Voting Rights Act. First, they got it. Well, first they did Citizens United. <laughs> And, that's right right and that and that then bought them a few other judges to allow them to do the rest of their damage right and and, and with those judges they gutted enforcement of the voting rights act then they gutted the act itself then they said you know i w- we're not sure what what, what racial gerrymandering is, but we understand that we probably need to keep that illegal, even if we're not sure what it is. But political gerrymandering, oh, we can't touch that. Right. And they walked, they didn't just say, we can't figure it out. They closed the federal judiciary to any, like, you can't ask them this question anymore. Uh, uh, John mm-hmm. Roberts said, this is none of our business. Right. Never, right. I mean, uh, appalling. Of abdication of responsibility. And I think Elena Kagan wrote the dissent that was um, so beautiful about like this, what is our democracy supposed to be? No. Um, and this this court that is walking away from our democracy, left and right, at every oppor- no just right um, at every opportunity they have is there because of that Citizens United decision that that paid for the uh, senators who pledged to Leonard Leo to take uh, justices off his list.
2: Uh, you're absolutely right. I ha- I often say that, you know, this court is going to be known for two things, the undermining of our democracy and overturning a woman's right to choose. Like uh, the attack on our most fundamental freedoms and rights is really the legacy of this court. And before they could do all of the things that you named, like you said, what started it off was the Citizens United decision, where they said money equals speech and corporations are people. And it allowed uh, just a flood of unlimited and undisclosed money um, into our system, because that then has powered everything else that they have done since then. Right. They. They, it took them another $500 million to steal seats on the court and stack the court. It took them $600 million to set up uh, the efforts to overturn Roe, but it is all first by that unlimited and undisclosed money flooding into the system. Um, and it has touched every part of our governance and life since. I Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, since we were talking about him earlier, Senator Whitehouse has this great anecdote that I I like to steal. So I want to give him full credit for it um, when he first entered the Senate. And as you know, climate and oceans are, are you know, one of his top priorities. And when he first entered the Senate, uh, there were 14 instances of Senate Republicans working with Senate Democrats to try to address the impacts of climate change. Then Citizens United happened in January 2010. And since that day, there have been zero efforts from Senate Republicans to address the issues of climate change, even as we have seen those impacts increase every single year. And that's because the oil and gas lobby continues to be one of the biggest spenders uh, in our elections. And they don't even have to spend the money. They just have to threaten to spend the money and scare uh, scare them into doing nothing. So we've seen it on prescription drugs. We've seen it on climate change. We've seen it on guns, uh, policy uh, priority after policy priority. We've seen the dysfunction and gridlock that big money causes.
1: And to go full circle, dysfunction and gridlock make people Question whether democracy is a workable uh, framework for addressing the problems we have going forward. So it is a strategy. It's not just an outcome of what uh, these autocrats are, are doing to us. <clears throat> and that's why the miracle of the 117th Congress um, is, is just so awe-inspiring with the tiniest of majorities some amazing legislation got passed that really is moving us forward, including on climate, which uh, you so clearly uh, pointed out, is what uh, Citizens United's first target was.
2: And it it really is truly incredible what was accomplished in the last two years um, from you know, everything from infrastructure to making progress on gun safety for the first time in 25 years to uh, lowering prescription drug prices, insulin uh, cap on insulin prices um, for so many people. Uh, your, to your point, the, the green energy and climate change provisions that were in the Inflation Reduction Act, Um, You know, it it is truly incredible with, as you pointed out, such a slim majority, what actually got done, Uh, the Electoral Count Act reform. And here's Mm -hmm. the other thing. While all that was this was in the in the shadow of how that Congress started, which was January 6th. Right. The worst attack we've seen on our democracy and um, the courage that it took those members We didn't just go to work every single day, right? Uh, And the fact that we didn't see the attacks on our democracy stop and people come together to try to solve our problems after January 6th. Instead, we saw instances of the big lie and election denial increase after January 6th. And so to take us full circle to something we were talking about earlier, it is really amazing not only what they got accomplished, But then that they were also able to use things like the January 6th committee Mm
3: -hmm. to
2: help educate voters about what was truly at stake, what was going on and what their choices were. And then, you know, like I said before, it gives me so much hope and it's so inspiring to see Americans turn out and turn out in force and say, no, this extremism is not what we want. We do care about our democracy. We believe it's being mm-hmm. threatened right now, and we're going to vote accordingly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I want to, you know, I think the leaders in this last Congress did a brilliant job. I, Nancy Pelosi, I cannot say enough about Greatest her Greatest of all time. I think they should Greatest name the Dome after her in Congress. I really do. I think Absolutely. she's just been the best, it, most talented um, and uh, ethical uh, leader. Um, Uh, But the Senate side, they got stuff done with a no majority um, and um, and the president did a fabulous job. And yet I think they were only able to do it because Americans have made up their mind. We do not want to follow the oil companies to destroy our planet. We don't. We believe that our rights should be expanded and not contracted. And it's not an issue for most of us across the country. We want to be able to vote and we think our neighbors should vote. So they were great leaders, no question. But America has, is pretty clear, you know, in very big majorities and in every state where we are. Just look at Kansas when they thought they were going to enshrine <laughs> anti abortion Bit into the constitution and those nice republican women all over Kansas went to vote and said uh-uh not happening. not happening here so so we have i think the the sort of majesty of the billions of decisions that ordinary americans make every day which is the vitality of our democracy it's not some weird idea of what america is it's just all the decisions each of us makes every day and they and And we are going one way. So the other side, the few who want it to be the other way, they can't do it democratically. That's why the dark money is so important. That's why they want to have chaos. That's why they want to wrap their arms so tightly around um, uh, undoing voting rights and the like. They can't get what they want from a public that won't give it to them by democratic means.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. I always think about it as like the three legs of a stool. You have money uh, in politics as one leg of the stool, voting and voting rights as another leg, and then redistricting and gerrymandering as the other leg. Yeah. And what they are trying to do is basically rig each of those legs, right? With the yep. Dark money and, and the flood of money with the, uh, the voter suppression laws at rates higher than we've uh, seen them since Jim Crow. And, of course, the uh, gerrymandering, both partisan and racial, that we talked about earlier. And the people are – but the people are catching on to this, right? And they are not okay with it. And they are – they went to the polls and they said, no, this is not what we want. And what the Republican Party should do is, you know, step back and actually figure out how they can address people's real, con- real day to day concerns. But instead, they just continue to try to uh, undermine our democracy and grab power in a really autocratic way. And I, you know, it, it, it's a scary moment we're in, Um I, I feel more determined than ever, and it is because uh, the people continue to believe and continue to fight. But we need all of you and your listeners and thank you, Edwin, for all the work you do to just keep talking about it and keep it up out there and up there and keeping people energized.
1: You know, I, you got to thanking me before I got to thanking you, which was on my mind, um, cause your work is awesome. <laughs> and, and so important to, um, right sizing the voices in our democracy so that those of us who just are out there doing what we do every day have the same ability to, uh, make a difference in our country as everybody else. And that is, That's the vitality of a democracy that you're fighting for every day. And I'm deeply grateful for that work and for the time you give me from time to time on this show for our listeners. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you so much. And uh, if folks want to follow us on Twitter, we are at StopBigMoney. And I am Tiffany underscore Mueller. Uh, So follow us on Twitter or go to EndCitizensUnited.org and join us. We need everyone Uh, in this fight.
1: And I'll tweet all that out for you guys all uh, sometime later hey. today. Thank you, Tiffany. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. It was great to talk with you.
1: Okay, everybody. We are going to take a break for the news. And when we come back, we're going to talk to some of the really smart, uh, a really smart guy about polling and data, Tom Bonnier. Stay with us.
0: You're listening to the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820
1: okay everybody um uh i'm joined now by tom bonier he's of course known to all of you uh, he leads target smart he and his company are laser focused on the data that drives politics and uh, tom did more than anybody to help people understand how people were voting uh, late in the last cycle tom welcome back
4: it's great to be back
1: so um I have a lot of questions for you. Some things I didn't understand in the data and you can help me understand them. But first, I think I want to, I want to uh, tell everybody that when you and I talked before the end of the last cycle and you were looking at all the data and you were saying, you know, all those polls that say there's a big red wave, there's some problems there. Um, And, That you were, you know, up against your whole profession, (laughs) people who do what you do. And you said, you know, it's not, you guys don't have it quite right. I think maybe um, your warning saved us a few seats because I know the red wave lies cost us a couple seats. Um, And maybe even, you know, one that I care an awful lot about, which was um, Mandela Barnes versus Ron Johnson. But the, you know, when the money looked at the polling in other places and got scared. Do um, you want to talk about the use of the red wave scare at the end of the last cycle and what it might have done?
5: Yeah, I would love to. And, and I should say up front, I want to give credit to Simon Rosenberg as well. who I'm sure yep. your listeners know, but he's someone who, you know, the, the, the two of us were on a, a bit of a lonely island together at times. It's not someone I had worked with, um, though I'd been aware of for for you know, a couple of decades, but not someone I had had the opportunity to work with and we just found ourselves really beating the same drum. And as you said, you know, I appreciate the opportunity a couple of times before the election to share what we were seeing um here on the show because we really only had limited opportunities there. But you know, I mean the short version of it is we know there was this set narrative leading up to the election. that really Lasted for two years. It was basically as soon as the 2020 election was over, people started talking about, well, but the midterm election, it'll be a red wave because the party in power always loses dozens of seats. I think the average is something like 40 some odd seats. That was the assumption. That was the conventional wisdom. And then the polling really reinforced that notion. It, it, it reinforced everyone's priors. And then, you know, as we saw over the summers, you and I talked about going back to August and September of last year, Dobbs, changed things i mean even before that the republican parties you were talking about with your last guest as you've been talking about all along the republican party has underperformed because of their extremism so even prior to dobbs it didn't look mm-hmm. like they were headed towards this huge decisive victory but it did appear like they would likely take back both chambers pick up a handful of seats dobbs happens all the dynamics, all the data that we were looking at in terms of voter registration, special election results, fundraising numbers, um, things like that, all of those elements of people actually taking actions were pointing towards a very energized Democratic base and a not-so-energized Republican base, and independents generally rejecting Republican extremism. And a lot of the polls showed that, too. If you knew what to look for in the polls, you would see reinforcement of that notion. But... The thing that was different about this cycle was that there was this overwhelming flood of polls, mostly from pollsters that even I, who have been doing this for decades, had never heard of before. And then, you know, companies who have become a little bit better known in the last couple of cycles, like Trafalgar and Insider Advantage, Mm -hmm. leading the way. And they were really just flooding the poll averages with – Bizarre polls that if you took a moment to look at them as we did, as you mentioned a moment ago, you could see that these were not numbers we should rely on. When you look at their likely voter samples, when you look at how they were weighting the sample, meaning, you know, how many Democrats they talked to, how many young people they talked to, how many independents, how many women, you see these polls that would have no gender gap, which after Dobbs. We knew that wasn't going to happen after women um, lost their right to choose. You mentioned Kansas a minute ago. So th- those polls had a real impact, um, unfortunately, I think, in a lot of ways. I think in, in, in potentially depressing Democratic turnout, but I think in, in the biggest way, and you mentioned Wisconsin, and this is something that um, will be hard for me to ever get over because, you know, as we all know, that race was decided by a point, about 25,000 votes, very narrow margin. Yep. Yep. Uh, and when you look at the issue environment and what people in Wisconsin were hearing every morning, what they're reading in the paper, seeing in the news, you know, it was about crime and inflation because reporters were trying to explain why Mandela Barnes was losing because poll after poll was showing him losing by wide margins. In the last week, there were polls that had him down six, seven points. He lost by a point. I think that had an impact on that race. I believe he wins without that false red wave narrative. And there are a number of races like that around the country. So it's unfortunate. Um, I'm, I'm glad we were able to call attention to it. I don't know if we had an impact on these races. It would be nice to think that we did. Uh, but hopefully, if nothing else, going forward, as we think about this cycle, uh, the media and, and the general public will be less prone to it. And that this yeah. Republican scam won't work again.
1: Yep my I don't know you know at the very end of the last cycle more people had heard you and Simon and were m- more skeptical but it was late they we lost i think 10 maybe 10 days maybe two really important weeks where money flooded to places where panic wasn't called for
5: that's right, like the Washington Senate race, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> where you know the five thirty eight yeah. average had it uh as a very close race, and money did go there, and she ended up yep. winning by what thirteen fourteen points, maybe fifteen points, and I do right. I mentioned five thirty eight you know I think we have to call them out they uh are supposed to be the guardians to a certain extent they are you know their job is aggregating polls, but putting them in context and creating an average where they say. They filter out these house effects, and and they make sure that you know there's some amount of reliability there, and and they failed. Yeah,
1: they got they gamed. Around. They got gamed. They did. They definitely they got gamed. Yeah. All right. Well, um, uh, here's something I don't understand. Um, I keep reading, and I think, I'm sure it's true. There were more GOP House votes than Democratic votes I, I, in this last cycle. Um, And that we actually outperformed our vote totals, which for me is completely counterintuitive, given gerrymandering. Can you help me understand that?
5: Yeah, you know, it's a little bit weird. There have been some, I think, bad early takes that have maybe shaped the narrative in a way that's not entirely accurate. You know, at this point. Within a day or two of the election, it looked like Republicans were going to win the popular vote. They were winning at that point by about five points. And so people looked at it and said, well, gosh, it was a plus five Republican electorate. The Democrats yeah, no, held longer. on to the Senate and almost held on to the House. Well, in reality, it's going to be about 1.8 points uh, in the end when you account for mm-hmm. open seats, uncontested seats. It's probably closer to a point. So it is, I think the different thing here is the, 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 the National popular vote for the House pretty closely actually reflects the results that Republicans having um, this narrow majority. They want to narrow, and that hasn't happened in the past. I think that's what we're conditioned to. You know, part of that is Democrats actually did a good job in redistricting uh in 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 terms of when you look yeah. at the bias, and there was this except analysis New York. that came out, except New York, where New York. Democrats blew it and lost the house. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you,
1: thank um, you, Andrew
5: Cuomo. There in Illinois and Oregon and in yeah. uh, in in other places, Democrats did a good job, and that allowed the national result to be pretty representative. The other thing that we need to keep in mind is this was the least nationalized election we've seen in probably at least a generation, meaning in some places, uh, the landscape, New York, looked um, more like a red wave. In Mm. other places, it looked more like a blue wave. If you look at what happened in New York, and we're just now getting the individual level turnout data in, so we can see what actually happened. We have that in New York. Democratic turnout was abysmal, and and the districts were not favorable. Those things combined uh, to seeing us lose a bunch of seats there. But then you look at states like Michigan and Pennsylvania as two of the leading examples. Democratic turnout was excellent. Young voters came out. Uh, voters of color came out. Independents sw- swung towards Democrats. And, you know, we picked up a couple of legislative chambers, obviously won the governorships and the Senate race. Uh, and so it was a very... Um, uneven result, uneven environment. I think a big part of that was this question and one of my takeaways is this notion of Republican extremism, Democrats have been talking about it for a long time, and it hasn't entirely resonated. I think Dobbs changed that in these states where they saw the dynamic change and where they saw choice at risk or choice actually being taken away. Suddenly, Republican extremism was plausible because they were living that. I and so January 6th so you think resonated, New York
1: more, was resonated more, democracy resonated more.
5: Yeah. New York was, I looked at, we've got, you know, Maryland, uh, uh, where I am. Um, you know, we had good result and elected our first African-American governor, but you look at the turnout, which we just got in, um, yesterday. And I was looking at that Democratic turnout wasn't great. It was just, it's such a democratic state. Um, we're able to win. Uh, but for the most part, you look at these states where choice wasn't at risk and isn't at risk, isn't threatened. And, Democratic turnout didn't really resonate. I mean, I think the lesson here is because you mentioned Kansas a few minutes ago um, with your previous guest, and that was the most, you know, that was the warning signal. Right. But that was also the opportunity that we recognized that choice is going to motivate voters. It brought young voters out, it brought women out. The lesson there was we need to be able to connect with voters and make sure that they see that their vote is going to matter on these issues of Republican extremism. I think what we saw in the house over the past week, I think is going to help drive that home uh, more.
1: Yeah. Going forward.
5: And, I agree. And, and then just in the battleground States, because that was Repu- Republican extremism. It's not just what happened in the last week. It's how, what happened in the last week and what happened early this morning sets up what's going to happen in the next two years, which I believe means yeah. Republican extremism is just going to be on full clear full
1: display. Present yeah. display yeah but you know one other thing i take a slightly i take a, a, a an additional takeaway from new york um versus other places and and this is uh for all of you out there i think you can't make a difference um organizing makes a difference the new york democratic party was a shambles, um, you know, crushed by the aftermath. Well, the the machine that was there forever was in the last of an old machine, and and not modernized and sort of crushed by the exit of Andrew Cuomo. And, um, but when you had organizations up against very tough odds in like Michigan and Wisconsin, where the ground game was so good. where where they took the idea of building a party, a place that, to a new place, right? It wasn't no longer just um, um, union and um, big city uh, machine, but rather a much more, um, while uh, unions were still big partners, but it was still much more inclusive organizing model. That made a huge difference.
5: That's right. And in in places like Nevada and Arizona as well, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. where you just have such strong in Nevada you've had it, and especially the culinary union We talk about unions yep. in Arizona uh, there's been a generation of activists who I think were, have been frustrated for decades uh, in, in terms of Republican control and, but they've built and they've grown uh, structure and you saw that on display and I agree in New York I think they lack that it's something I mentioned Simon Rosenberg again uh, before I'll mention him again a point that he makes I think is dead on is this notion of controlling the issue environment and in places where uh, we as Democrats and progressives are able to control the issue environment, we did well. In places where we ceded that control, and you saw that in New York, even, uh, you know, frankly, with the mayor and some of his comments before Election Day, they weren't especially helpful, and they were ceding the, the messaging and issue environment to the Republicans. So and all in
1: the all law and order stuff. Yeah,
5: yeah, it's absolutely a mistake. And, and saying that Democrats are, are are getting hurt by by, you know, liberal messaging and we're going to lose. There was this, this doom and gloom prediction that, you know, um, and, and again, part of that goes back to this red wave narrative and the false red wave polling. And, you know, the one thing that we didn't touch on was this wasn't just the media and Republicans. To be clear, it was a lot of Democrats who were spreading it as well.
1: Uh, Yeah, they bought well. Nobody does hand wringing and, and like, woe is me, like we do.
5: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Obviously, Democrats weren't doing it as, as, you know, complicit in this scam. They were just like you say, it was hand It was we've been through some bad elections and we're always ready to have the football pulled out uh, from yep. under our feet. And so that's where we went. And, you know, we need to be more positive. We need to control the issue environment. We need to be more aggressive. And I think your bottom line conclusion is probably the most important one. Organizing matters. And it's something that we can't just wait. Wait until the last few weeks to be out there. It's the sort of thing that we need to be doing it today, tomorrow, and for the next two years if we're going to be successful uh, in the 2024 elections. Not to, to, to blast past the important elections that are going to happen between now and then because there are many.
1: Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know how to think about, you know, this, how you would get this in data or in polling, but it's my sense when I talk to The people who are doing that kind of organizing now around the country—that what they're engaged in—is surely about politics, but it also is um, is a is a kind of old-fashioned community building that's addressing a gap that America's had since well, you know, since uh, that, that was certainly first identified in a big way when Robert Putnam wrote Bowling Alone right? That just civil, people are going their own way, that organizations that stitched us together are vanishing. Now the right forever did a better job of keeping their their organizations going. They organized in churches, they organized in militias. On the left, we didn't have that. And now okay. this new brand of politics is creating on ramps for people to get to know their neighbors, creating um, sort of sticky organizations where people are in communities doing community building. And it is a, yeah. I think it's an enormously healthy thing for the nation.
5: Oh, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think in a way we as Democrats and progressives have President Trump to thank for that a bit, because what we saw, you know, I was here in D.C. the day after his inauguration at the Women's March with my family, mm-hmm. my, wife and my two mm-hmm. daughters, and just seeing that. Organically, almost yeah, there there was organization to it, but wasn't the same sort of organization that you generally have for these rallies. And we saw that around the country. But then what we saw was this emergence of you know the so-called resistance organizations, groups like Indivisible. Uh, I I, I can't. There's dozens and dozens of them. But they were but they were um, emerging organically. It wasn't top down for the most part. This was bottom up, grassroots organizations, people who were uh, frankly scared and concerned about what a Trump presidency would do to their communities and to those most exposed, and they decided to take action. And then you saw national organizations like America Votes and Movement Cooperative coming together and providing structure and providing tools and resources to them. And it was a a, a throwback to what the Democratic Party and progressive movement, um, mostly through labor unions but not exclusively, used to do very well. In empowering, like you say, this level of community organization, uh, and it, it, it lives today. It thrives, you know, six years later, um, we're seeing these groups maturing and growing. You're seeing members of these groups being elected to office uh, at the national level and at the local level. And so I think that's Mm -hmm. only going to grow. And I I agree it was something that this country desperately needed and certainly the democratic and progressive movement needed. And we just need to cultivate that and continue to empower these groups and, and hopefully see them grow everywhere
1: right because on if you if you look at your data on issues Americans believe in reproductive choice they think our gun laws are crazy they do not want to hand a, a poisoned environment and a climate disaster to their kids on all of these issues that democrats have campaigned on that's where the public is right so so organizing the public and how they believe is is going to strengthen um, progress on all of these issues up against the money that's on the other side.
5: Well, and in the end, people make decisions. Number one, they, they vote based on what they believe to be true. Uh, and yeah. that goes back to this notion of the issue environment. Um, but number two, I think following up on that, how do we change that? The most powerful way to change that is people hearing from people in their own communities, who they know, who they respect, who they have a relationship, or if they don't know, at least it's someone they identify as part of their tribe, so to speak. And um, it, it's that sort of organizing that has emerged, that has become effective. And to your point, we do have the issue advantage. We haven't always had the messaging advantage, meaning if we could lay everything bare and strip through the misinformation that has been prevalent, yes, a broad majority of americans a substantial majority of americans agree with democrats uh and rebuke what republicans stand for but the challenge has been breaking through that misinformation cycle breaking through what people see on social media and i do believe the remedy for that is taking a lot of this offline and in in this type of interpersonal, interrelational organizing uh, that's going on. We just need to do more of it. It, it. That's not to forgive what's happening in the media and in some of these outlets and what we're seeing with Elon Musk and Twitter. Is we, we 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 need to focus on that, too, right? We need to push back on misinformation. We need to own these platforms. I mean, I'm quite conflicted when it comes to Twitter because it has so many Me wonderful too. things. But each day I feel more guilty as I see Me what. Too does yeah. with it and supporting it so it's it's yep. it's yep. it's tricky
1: yeah well, hopefully there'll be an alternative that is robust enough soon but yep, I yeah i
5: i'm, I'm, I'm yeah. waiting i'm waiting i've, I've you know yep. i've I, I i took the time to figure out how the heck to get on to mastodon and i uh, did too but i don't like it allowed into post no I don't, I don't love it either i haven't i haven't really used either of them but i'm there you know i think it's yep. important that we at least have backups because it it, it very much has the feeling of uh, twitter that is of something that could just disappear overnight and i don't think anyone would yep. be surprised
1: yeah yeah Hey, um, it, it's sort of a really interesting question, you know, though, we do live in this uh, uh, unprecedented social media time in the world. I mean, where people can communicate so broadly and so much of it is dishonest. Um, I, I, I hark back to an experience I had, I was a Chicago alderman and I ran for reelection. Um, and, um, a friend of mine, uh, heard from a friend of hers, hey, he's like, they're all crooks. He's a crook. I'm not supporting him. And she said, I know him. I've worked with him. He's not a crook. He's a good guy. And the person who had this really strong opinion that I was a crook said, oh, really? That's interesting. And then ended up being a huge supporter. So, I mean, the lesson here is that Americans have busy lives and most of them are not paying attention all the time to politics, thank God, because we want to go to a baseball game and the baseball players should Pay attention to baseball or read a novel or go to a movie. There are other aspects of our lives that we love. You and I pay a lot of attention to politics. But the thing that made, makes a difference for those who don't is someone who knows them who has paid attention. And then they, they credit that source more than everything else.
5: That's right. Well, I think it's also I, – I think it's very much that, and I think a, a close second is someone that – an American voter can look at and identify with. And when I think about Florida and I think Mm. what has happened with Florida, because it's a great example, right? It's a state that has been a perennial battleground, but lately it has been very frustrating for Democrats. And in last year's election, it didn't resemble a battleground. Um, It was bad. Democrats didn't turn out. And when you think about that, well, who is the person that a Florida Democrat looks at? They're being inundated every day uh, by their governor. Uh, and by Republicans in the state, by the former president taking up residence there. And um, there is a level of indoctrination there. And there's not really counter-programming. Who is the Democrat who a Floridian Floridian looks at and identifies with? Now, I think you're seeing promising things happening, emerging from the, the ashes of this last election. You see people like Maxwell Frost elected in Orlando. You know, who's gotten a lot of attention, rightfully the first Gen Z member of Congress, 25 Mm -hmm. years old. We need more people like that who people who Floridians can look at. And you can say the same thing in places like Texas and around the country and say that's someone I identify with. So when you hear similar to your Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. experience in Chicago, uh, when you hear these sorts of things about Democrats, you say, well, I'm I'm hearing them say that in abstract, but I know this person.
1: Yeah, that's.
5: True, and we need more of that. We need that's where that's where our opportunity to collectively organize at the local level becomes incredibly powerful. Why we need more people running at the local level uh, mm-hmm. because they can be those standard bearers. So when this Republican misinformation machine is spreading disinformation as they do, we have others who can push back and be credible people in the community who they're going to believe first.
1: Yeah, that's pretty fun, and I mean, when people stand, it's just really fun to see. For me, I mean, it's powerful, but it's also fun when you know these big voices say one thing, and you just have somebody, you know, somebody credible in the community who stands up, and everybody's like, "Wow, it's a little Mister Smith goes to Washington."
5: It's yeah, that's all, kind of, that's all
1: it takes. That's all it takes. It's kind of amazing anymore. Hey, uh, yeah, it is. You need a lot. More. Um, you're at the end of the last cycle your um, dashboard proved proved was cited by reporters everywhere because you were the mm-hmm. keeping track really of how early voting was going. And that, that said a few things to me. Um, first, you really are as good as I've always thought you were <laughs> to <laughs> journalists and even casual observers of politics are getting more savvy about how voting actually works in America and what it might mean. Um, really important given the, you know sort of the lies at the end of the last uh, two years ago um and three that there's a real need for data-driven analysis in our political ecosystem i mean i, I all three of those seem um important
5: well at uh, first i appreciate your kind words and i um you know it's funny i i talked to a reporter after the election cycle i've talked to a handful who to their credit wanted to reach out and say you were seeing something I wasn't, or I wasn't listening. Can you explain to me what that was? Because I want to do better. And Simon and I have mm-hmm. done briefings for a handful of national mm-hmm. newsrooms, and to their credit, they want to do better. And it's funny, some of them, one of the first ones I spoke to said, so what I'm understanding is I shouldn't pay attention to the polls at all. I should only pay attention to the early vote. And I said, no, absolutely not. No. That's not the case. That The point is, there are a number of different data sources that, give us information about what potentially could happen. And, Each of them fills in one piece of the puzzle or maybe multiple pieces of the puzzle. And none of them are going to perfectly predict the future. We need to forget that. That's not going to happen. There's no tool that can do that. But if you widen your aperture and you don't just look at polls, but you look at polls critically and you look at polls in the context of everything we talked about a minute ago, uh, new voter registration data, Mm -hmm. early voting Mm -hmm. data. It was funny that so many well-respected political analysts, data analysts, we're mocking the notion of the early vote uh, analysis being predictive in any way. Over 50 million people voted before Election Day, almost half the electorate. As I've said again and right. again and again, if you can look at a database and know these are the 50 million people who voted and we know their partisanship and we know their past vote history and everything else about them. If you can look at that and you can't draw some conclusions about what could happen in this election you're probably not a very good data or election analyst so we need to and so it's actually a little bit more complicated than everyone would hope it would be it's not that complicated you know i'm not I'm not a math wizard. I was I was actually an international relations major. So right. uh, it, it's not that complicated. You can look at these different elements. You combine them together. It's going to paint a picture. And what it's going to do is eliminate some scenarios. That's what happened yeah. with all the data we were looking at. It eliminated the notion that Democrats were going to stay home as they, yeah. as they would have to do for it to be a red wave election year. It took that yeah. off yeah. the table, yeah. and that was important
1: yeah really well, listen, I am grateful as always for your time, even more grateful now that you are a national star for your work um <laughs> and i and, and I'm grateful for the work. It makes a huge difference it's a big help and I look forward to more conversations as this once again important year um unfolds
0: well
5: as do I, and thank you so much for everything you do.
1: all right take care all right, everybody. that was Tom who the um uh very smart uh, uh, mind behind target smart and all this data that we need. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, the wonderful chair of the Michigan Dems, Lavora Barnes will join us.
0: You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPD 820.
1: Okay. It's now my great pleasure to be joined by the wonderful, um, talented, uh amazing lavora barnes who chairs the michigan dems um lavora thank you um and thank My you again, pleasure, Edwin. and thank Happy you again <laughs> for all the work that you did to um you know help find great candidates to help connect people to help deliver this miracle in michigan
3: we are so proud of the work that we have done here in Michigan. You know, you and I have talked so many times about where we started, which was after that 2016 election and the 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 thing that we built here at the state party that allows us to support candidates all over the state and you know, we were, we were always building toward knowing that 2020 and 2022 were going to be tough years for us, particularly after the victories in 18. Um and uh we did it. Right. We, we managed not only to return our three top statewide women to their offices, but um, we picked up the state House and the state Senate. Um, and Edwin, I, we don't talk about it much, but, you know, this cycle we, with some terrific partners around the state, built out a, a school board program. And I'm so proud of the nearly 200 school board candidates that our folks worked with and helped to victory. It's um, you know, top to bottom, wall to wall here, the work that we did at well, the party. And, and I'm so proud.
1: Let's be clear. When you started, when you started, I'm, I'm, I'm right about this, aren't I? The Republicans had everything in Lancet when you started. Yes, yes. Everything, yes. right? All they had the legislature. Yes. They had the all the all of it. So you were you yes. ran the tables, <laughs> yes. a complete yes. flip yes. of the state. <laughs> and I, you know, yes. it, it, state and locally. I mean, it's a. I, I look at I look at Grand Rapids, which I grew up thinking was mm-hmm. like the reddest of red in the Midwest, and it, you know, kind of isn't anymore. Right. The, the
3: the change that's happened in Grand Rapids and in Kent County. Um, is is spectacular to see, you know, and it's been a step-by-step, cycle-to-cycle hard work for the folks of, of the Democrats. Democratic Party over there. They've never stopped working. You know, we built out this this idea that we did grassroots organizing everywhere all the time. And they took it to heart and they believed in it. And they pushed and pushed and look where they landed. And, you know, t- together with with folks in the surrounding areas, they sent the magnificent Hillary Scolton to Congress. Folks mm-hmm. over there are represented by a Democrat for the first time in their memories. And she happens to be a terrific Democrat. um, And they're going to they're going to be represented so well. It's it's just it's delightful. And I think about also Grand Rap. I mean, Grand Traverse County, where Traverse City is. We've made so many strides in that county like this. This is what's next. We did better in Macomb County, even though we didn't get Carl Marlinga elected. We did better in Macomb County than we have in Cycles. And that is about the grassroots organizing. It's about not giving up on an area that people say, oh, you can't win it anymore. Macomb has gotten away from the Dems. Not if the Dems work hard. Not if the Dems don't give up. And we don't give up on any area of the state because there are Dems everywhere. We just have to find them and remind them why they're Dems and remind them how important it is to turn out for these elections.
1: Yeah, it's an amazing thing. And we, you and I have talked about this before, but the the work that you do builds community, makes neighborhoods stronger, safer, more viable. So it's it's about politics, but it is building society at the same time. And I'm in awe of it every time I think about it. Thank you. So, Thank you so much. Uh, and that's
3: why the, the school board work felt so important this time, yep. right? Because talk about community. Yep. Like, that's that's so very local. And what was happening in those school board meetings around the state was unconscionable. And we we had to do something to make sure that those folks who were protesting against books that we've all read, against truths that we all know, we had to do something to make sure they didn't take over everywhere. And um, we leaned in with the communities and helped some, some smart Great folks get on the ballot and run and win seats in school boards, and it will change communities. It will change students' lives. It will make a difference that is long term and long lasting.
1: Um, Lavora, earlier in this show, I was uh, I, I was quoting FDR and talking to guests mm-hmm. about what democracy really is, and it's a complicated wow. question. And I'm fascinated to know what you think about that, but. You have an advantage that's unique to everybody I've ever talked to. So can I ask you a different hard question first, which is really what what is a political party really? And what is it for? Because I grew up really good. (laughs) I, I grew up in Chicago during a time when the Republican Party was running away from civil rights and the Democratic Party was a machine controlled, corrupt monopoly. So I grew up like, okay, I'm going to be an independent. I'm just going to pick the best candidates I can find. But to, today, that, that point of view seems quaint, <laughs> dated, <laughs> wrong. I, so, so I, like, talk, tell us what, what is a political party anymore and what's it for and why does it matter?
3: Yeah, I I think that the one thing that political parties have to be is malleable and changing, Um, changing with the times, changing with the circumstances, changing with the Democrats. Uh, And I think that you you as a party chair, anyone as a party operative has to build a party that meets the moment and does the work that needs to be done. So this party here in Michigan has has been what what a friend friend of mine, who's also a party chair in Washington state, described as the the highway, the superhighway. That candidates can put their candidate cars on. And that's about us building an infrastructure with grassroots organizing, with tools, and with messaging that candidates can then come and take and use and drive their candidate cars across toward the finish line that is election day. But parties are also a place where folks of like minds can come together. And work together, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, to get things done. And they're not always electoral things that need to get done. I think about the work that was done around redistricting, the work that was done um, in support of ballot initiatives that were not candidates. There's there's like minded work to be done together, and the parties provide a place for folks to come together and figure out ways to affect change that aren't always about a candidate, but are about making lives better for their communities. If that means you come together with your party to fight for a stoplight, you come together with your party to fight for a stoplight. But the parties need to be what that community and what that state needs in order to do that, which is the the contrast between what's happening with the Republican party, particularly here in Michigan, but everywhere, which has become something very different that I have a hard time describing, but it's not that it is not the place where um, Republicans and conservatives can go to try to affect change in favor of um, making people's lives better. That is not what they do anymore. And that is the beginning of the demise of a party.
1: Yeah, yeah, they feel to me um, like a, um, like a militia, only political, mm-hmm. like they have mm-hmm. a, they have a they aren't about growing they aren't about public no. opinion they are about affecting an outcome by whatever yes. means they can and that and that that is that that is a a, a kind of a political party but not a not a traditionally american kind of political american party.
3: exactly yeah that's exactly yeah. right. Um, and not about inclusion and growth. It's about exclusion and exclusivity. And um, it's, it's, a, and it's very different from the... From the exactly, in power. Very different power. from the sort of big big tent um, operations that we like to run on the Democratic side. Very different. And, and foreign, I think, in many ways to what Americans yeah. expect from
1: parties. Because our great parties, the Republicans for most of their history and the Democrats for most of their history, have been... Places where Americans have tested the ideas um, that that are going to sort of drive us forward, um, and and we've disagreed a lot about. We've flipped positions sometimes on some of them over huh? over our histories, right? Um, but but that's where those ideas get tested before they get into um, government in some ways, and they get battled out that way, and that's not what's going on in the in the GOP right now it's a yeah. very different kind of creature that I, I think the work of this year for americans is going to be to figure that out i mean yeah
3: that's exactly right and and it is so important to our democracy that we figure it out and that and that, that that republicans Figure themselves out. And if, if that means that they tear down what they have and start something new or if that means they figure out how to fix what's going on inside the current party. But something has to happen. This cannot continue. And I, I think that the elections of 2022 here in Michigan and across the country show that voters don't want what the Ameri- what the Republicans we're offering, you know, those candidates who were election deniers who were running here, who are running in Arizona, who are running in every other places lost in part because our candidates are terrific and we run a great operation, but also in part because of a rejection of where they stood on that single issue, which is what many of them were running on, and only that issue. And I think if the if the Republican Party can't see that, then they they can't move forward because I, I think the vote the voters I hope I hope the voters are finished with that, right? Moving on. And they want the, the Republican Party to move on as well.
1: I, I think they are. I of course worry that that the the, the organizing inside the current MAGA republican party and i think the the house democrat the house republicans are now fully captured we saw that over the last few days by this um this they're not interested in what the public wants that's not what they're there for they're interested in finding paths to power that don't require the public to participate and that's why dark money is so important to them that's why um challenging voting rights is so important to them they are they, they i mean i'm terrified because i've never really lived in a time when the party in control of the people's house is there now hundreds of them after all voted to overturn the last presidential election they're there to undermine the democracy and that is
3: terrifying absolutely it's, it's terrifying. terrifying it should be terrifying to all of us Terrifying, and and it, it, you put you put your finger right on it. It is frightening to me that we can't fix all of this with electoral success because of the way our system is structured, because of the way money gets spent, because of the way lines get drawn in districts around the country. Um, the majority of us can believe that things should be different, and we still end up with a Republican Congress like this one. Um, And until we can fix those basic pieces of our democracy, money and redistricting, we're going to struggle to fix that larger piece that continues to be um, a frightening problem for us as as a nation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I... I had uh, in large chunks of my life I worked in around the world in, in, a, in a consulting capacity. And for many years, I worked in countries that were not democracies, where mm-hmm. um, where it did not matter what the people wanted. I mean, the, the, the governments tried not to run so afoul of their people they got thrown out, but they were not part of decision making in any way. And when people got uh, raised their hand too loudly about something, they disappear. Right. Um, right. So, so no one thinks the people of Iran like the government they have, but they have it. Right. And and, and it, history has taught us like, you can't say it could never happen here. It happened in the people's house, for gosh sakes. Uh-huh. This, uh-huh. Well, worse, On the anniversary of January 6th, the Republican party caved to the group in it that, that, that that does not want us to honor elections.
3: Exactly right. The the group that, the group that cheered on an
1: insurrection is now all voted to um, overturn the election. Exactly. Exactly. It's shocking. It's frightening. When I was asking like about political parties, it was to help me and you have helped me to understand what they are when we have a healthy America and what they are are when we have uh, unhealthy, um, you know, body politic. And you've built one that is enormously healthy, that that builds stronger communities just by virtue of the work you do, by bringing people together to solve common problems, as opposed to close ranks, spend money, um, take power. It's a different kind of party. Very different. Very different. But the, the kind of party we should
3: we should be building everywhere and on both sides.
1: Right. On both sides. You and I need there to be. A, uh, uh, I'd love to have us talk about a conservative solution to a problem and a progressive solution to a problem and talk about the difference. But we haven't been able to have that conversation in a couple of years. Because that's not what's on no. offer on the other side. That's, exactly. That's that's not what's been happening. It's just been solutions on one
3: side and and madness and roadblocks on the other.
1: So um, I, I you I think um, I have someone else who wants your job. Yes. Um, and right. And I um, love that about us and our and our democracy mm-hmm. that those contests happen i however do not expect you to have kevin mccarthy's uh 80 votes
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate that this this, is, this process is important to what we do it is important to being a small d organization a democratic organization mm-hmm. there there is an election um, anyone who is a member of this party could, could could step up and say they wanted to run for this position. Someone else has. Our election will be at our convention on February 11th. Um, and I, I take nothing for granted. You and I talk about that, about general elections for, for, for the uh, statewide and other posts here in Michigan. It's the same with my race. I do not take it for granted, but um, I'm very, very proud of the work that we have done, and I have a clear path of the work that we need to continue to do, including, you know, I've got a, a a spectacular U.S. senator who has decided not to run for re-election. So we have, right. we have an additional piece of work to do here, and I'd like to continue to do it. Um, I, I enjoy the work, and I think I'm pretty good at it.
1: You are really good at it. Really good at it. Now, <laughs> how how do we? You have some counterparts around the country who like you have found new ways for democrats to organize we've talked about this before i i'm actually today on this show i'm in arizona um you know the democrats have have made a lot of progress here um a lot of progress here in wisconsin the democrats have made a lot of progress i mean it's a different model than the one of a generation ago But it's uneven. Lots of the country, the Democrats, have not quite caught up. Um, My flashing light on this is, of course, New York, um, where their failure to get caught up and do what you do, it cost us the House. So how is it? I mean, once you get past February 11th, you have a really important work to do in Michigan. How how can we lift up um, our... Fellow Democrats in states that haven't caught up yet.
3: Yeah, um, from an organizing perspective. Are, yeah, there are there are several things, and and the, the big one always comes down to a the will and b the resources make it happen. Um, so, you know, state parties need, need leaders who have you know, an organizing vision. I'm not saying every big leader has to be an organizer like Ben Wickler or Laura Barnes, but needs to understand the importance of doing the, the organizing work as a party. And then we, we need to fund it. We need to find ways to give these state parties the resources to build that long-term infrastructure. It is hard raising money for state parties. Folks who give in the political world, are so much more inclined to give to a candidate than they are to a party. And it's part of our job to help them understand the importance of these state parties to those candidates and get them to invest in state parties all over the state and invest in strong programs, and invest with an eye toward organizing. I'm not asking anyone to write a state party a blank check. I'm asking folks to have conversations with state parties about the importance of building out an organizing model and then help them fund it. So important. I also think... You know, we should be talking about how and, and whether um, state party staff and leaders are compensated. You know, here in uh-huh. Michigan, I'm lucky enough that, you know, my job is a full-time job. I get paid to do this work. Not every state party chair gets paid to do the work. Um, uh-huh. Not every executive director gets paid well enough that they stay long enough. Um, I think uh-huh. that I was told that the shelf life of an executive director is about 18 months. Well, that's not even a whole cycle. Right so we we need to figure out how to build out infrastructure that allows state parties to pay people well to do the work they do. We're Democrats after all, we believe in making sure people can make a good wage, and then we need to help them build out the structure to to do that organizing work top to bottom and then of course, the hey, other work, the voter protection work they, you know yeah, all, of, all, of, all that it, work. it's a big job, but I think you know we start with the organizing and we build from there
1: so on the money side that i think the republicans are generally more willing to fund infrastructure whether it's state parties or just dark infrastructure to support their victories because um, they care less about their candidates and democrats still focus more on the candidates um, uh, and, and that you know candidate quality matters a lot and we yeah. them every time on candidate quality. They put in people like um, uh, the guy who is Jew-ish. <laughs> no, you know right. They, right. right? they don't they don't care if if George Santos what, what the lies are, they just want the vote. So we 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 spend more time on candidates, but that takes resources away from the infrastructure building. So this is where they have a bit of an advantage. Um, that you're, you're making a very, very strong argument we need to fix. Yes, yes,
3: we need to fix it. And um, I get frustrated on behalf of Jamie Harrison and the DNC, because a lot of times when this conversation comes up, people are quick to point a finger at the DNC. And we need to recognize that, that the DNC raises a lot of money, but not enough money to do what I'm talking about in terms of state party support. The DNC provides support to every state party in this country, financial support to every state party in this country. And it's enough for, for most folks to fund a couple of positions. It is not enough to build a full grassroots organization. And the DNC can't be expected to fund that. That's where a larger group of funders, funders in state, need to step up and recognize the importance of supporting that infrastructure of their
2: state party.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I love Jamie, but he is his hands full. I mean, it, it, running a state party is tough. Running whatever whatever the DNC thinks it is, right, is a collection of state parties and a national party. Um, um, anybody who's ever been to the Democratic convention can just talk <laughs> about the enormous diversity in yeah. this tent. <laughs> Of uh, and I'm not just talking about diversity like we usually do in America, like how we look, but how we think, our our experiences. It's a truly national party of a you know, it's a big country. So I he, he just being able to hold us together, let alone be able to fund state party infrastructure, is an amazing task. <laughs> <dance. laughs> it is. It is. A, it's
3: hard to actually fathom how how. How how he does that job, knowing what I know about my job and then, you know, exploding it across the entire country, it's it's tough. And he he is such a terrific individual. And I'm so proud to know I'm going to work with him. And um, his belief in a, a strong, full 57 states and, and territory strategy is deep and true and real. But again, um, limit limited in resources because there are so many other things that the DNC has to take care of.
1: Yes, and his donors um, are his donors. They don't all see yes. what you see, right? Yes. I mean, he's not going to say, "Well, I can't take the money for one good cause just because you don't see the others." And right. um, and it's,
3: it's very hard. And
1: this is this is the thing that we we struggle with with you know talking about an
3: 83 county strategy here in Michigan because you can win Michigan while ignoring many of the 83 counties, but you 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 won't win down ballot. You won't list others up if you run a race like that, which is the the, 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 the glory of having a Gretchen Whitmer who understands mm-hmm. that 83 strategy, challenge strategy. But for, you know, for the DNC, it is hard, I imagine, to tell a funder that you're going to write a check to say South Dakota when that funder is going to say, I need you to do Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and Florida, right? And Arizona, right. It, uh, it's, right yeah. Um,
1: and it goes back to a conversation I had uh, with uh, wonderful data wizard Tom Bonnier just before you got on here. Yeah. We were talking about how the dishonest red wave polls drove money to races that we didn't need it to go to at the end of the last cycle. That Mandela Barnes probably lost because we for 10 days we were focused on the state of Washington. Where it wasn't really necessary because of dishonest polls. We got, you know, yeah. um, uh, and it's your point. It's the same point. The, the big funders, they, they they worry that they want their money to have impact. They don't. They don't think about a ten-year strategy to move America forward. And, that, that, and but you are a case study that everybody needs to know about because the Michigan miracle is something that really could be a model for the whole country um uh for our, oh, for our community life as well as our politics it just makes everything better when you can do what I, you've done
3: I,
2: and it's, it's,
3: you know, it's by no means easy. And I think, you know, the, the conversations we've had over the years, everybody knows it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It's It's been building. It's something that we started building and will continue to build. It requires constant attention. It's like the house plant that I'm looking at right now that really could use some more. It requires constant attention. And you can't sort of win this trifecta that we've won and then, you know, wipe your hands and say, look what we did. We're finished. You know, now we have the monumental of incumbency protection for uh, a state house and a state Senate and growing those majorities because, you know, they're narrow right now and I'd like them to be bigger. So the the work just continues. And I think a lot of folks would like to see us fix the problem and then move on to the next one. And what we have to do as a country and as a state is fix the problem and then keep it fixed while fixing the next problem.
1: People hear the smile in your voice as you talk and don't understand how much steel there is behind it to do the job that you've done. Um, Thank you again for joining me. I look forward to these conversations so much, and I'm in awe of what you've done.
6: Thank you so much. It's
3: always my pleasure to be with you. I can't wait to come back again. Thanks for the time. And thanks for all your support. You know, you cheering us on is always helpful. I like I like to know that folks around the country are paying attention to what we're doing and cheering for us. So thank you for that.
1: You bet. All right, everybody. That was the fabulous LaVora Barnes. Stay with us. We're going to take a break. Um, and when we come back, a professor of history and I are going to uh, round out this conversation. Take care.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, everybody. Um, I I am, as I say, I think we've had a fabulous set of conversations so far. So the bar is set high for my conversation with Seth Kotlar, professor of history at Willamette University. He's the author of Tom Paine's America. We've talked before on this show. Um, He's really fought a lot about illiberal conservatism in the GOP. And um, I think we have a lot to talk about. Seth, welcome back.
4: Thanks for having me back.
1: Um, I've been exploring a few ideas with guests for the past couple of hours. Um, uh, I think we have a long way to go, notwithstanding their wisdom. Maybe you can help. I want to think about with you not a small question, a big question, like what is our democracy and what political parties are for and how they can, they are different kinds. Um, and I, I, to me, so, so much of this comes down to language about how we talk about these things. I mean, FDR talked about democracy as a living force. Lincoln talked about it, you know, of the people, by the people, for the people. In Washington, via your man Tom Paine, talked, you know, set a body of men accountable to nobody ought to be trusted, uh, accountable to nobody ought, to, ought not be trusted by anybody. Who, who's helping us see our way through this mess today? Oh boy, um,
4: yeah. I, I mean, to me, the the most important question is when we talk about the people. Uh, we live in a country devoted to the idea of popular sovereignty, so the ideas that the people rule. And, of course, everybody, every politician says what they're doing is, you know, in the name of the people and that they are supported by the people. And the people is, of course, a complete abstraction. Um, and so to me, one of the real defining differences between the two parties today as they exist are the kind of demographic makeup um, of who these parties are. Right. So if you were to take 100 uh, Trump voters from 2020 and put them in a room uh, evenly distributed, uh, you would find that 89 of them would be white. Um, If you were to take 100 Biden voters from 2020 and put them in a room, (laughs) I believe the number is 55, would be white, um, and 45 would be not white. Uh, the current demographics of the United States are that about 61% of the population is white. So what we have, and that's just in terms of race, I mean you can do a similar thing in terms of sexuality, uh, in, in terms of gender, etc., um, and in terms of religion, right, so that we have one party that claims to speak for the people, which is the Republican Party, in a very kind of populist manner. But the people that they speak for is, um, I think of as the people that have historically had the wind behind their back in the history of the United States. So white property owning or
1: or their foot on somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so so but
4: and they think of themselves as being representative of the the, the real people, or as say Sarah Palin would have said, you know, the real the pro America parts of America. Um and this is this kind of Christian patriot tradition um that uh often is part of how the far right articulates itself and explains itself not as being extremist, but as being at the very center of what America is, which is that they're Christians, they're patriots, they're white, etc. Um and so the ways that these two parties have demographically shifted and sorted out over the last 20 years, um, you know, to me, it's a good sign that the Democratic Party has uh, finally sort of come to look more like the demographics of the people of the United States understood inclusively and broadly. Um, but it's it's a real problem that the Republican Party uh, is so out of step with the actual demographic makeup of the American people. Um, and I. And in 2013, after Mitt Romney lost, there was the autopsy that the Republican Party did, where they kind of acknowledged this and expressed a desire to work on it. And then they nominated Donald Trump in 2016. Uh, so... Uh, And now they've just gone even further, kind of doubling down on this segment of the population that is highly activated, the kind of Christian far right, um, but is a distinct and definite minority amongst the people and feels very alienated from the rest of the people uh, in the United States and sees the rest of the people as a kind of existential enemy, which is really troubling uh, and not a good sign for our democracy.
1: So that is all fascinating and really important to understand um, about how we've sorted. I, I want to ask you about a slightly different way of thinking about parties um, mm-hmm. or, or about this notion of popular sovereignty. I guess let's go to that. Um, um, every dictatorship that I know of in the world um, it, the, the dictator says through me is the spirit of the people. I represent the spirit of the people. The people is a abstraction as it was with Sarah Palin. Whereas in a really complicated way in, in democracies, the, the, the democracy isn't an abstraction of the people. It's the sum of the individual decisions and actions of millions of people. Right. right. Individuals. I don't know how you have democracy without individuality. Right? Because right. without it, you just have an idea of what the folk want. And that is right. always the excuse of every tyrant. Um, right. Which is why why the side that the Republicans have now adopted and I think right. the last note, completely capitulated in the House. I'm terrified about mm-hmm. this. Um, their argument is an abstraction. There is a vision of America that we are going to keep. It is, a, it is a democracy where some votes matter more than others, which is, of course, completely Orwellian, right? Some animals are more equal than others. I mean, just crazy yeah. talk. But that's where they've gotten themselves. And the Democrats have had a tough time. But we seem to be saying every individual matters. And right. we're going to try and corral us all to a collective better place. Right. That's how that's. How, so I think the parties are di- are dividing in that way, right. not yeah. just demographically, that's- but.
4: Right. Yeah, I, I think I'm mean, one another way to articulate this is, is the question of process and institutions. And so Mm -hmm. in a democratic society, that civil society has institutions like uh, journalism, like education, um, like courts. Um, And so we have these institutions um, that hold individuals accountable and which are staffed by individuals um, and that those institutions sustain an ongoing national conversation which is, of course, an abstraction, Um, but that there's a kind of national conversation in which every person's voice theoretically can be heard, should be heard. Everyone has a right to participate in that conversation, but that that conversation is governed by certain norms and rules of evidence argumentation, et cetera. And so this is why, to me, Trump's attacks on the media and today Elon Musk's attacks on the media are not a genuine critique of the failings of of the media historically. And the media, by no means in the U.S. or anywhere, has ever been perfect or ever will. And it's always worthy of criticism. But this is not a criticism intended to kind of reform the institutions that currently exist of the media. It's it's a criticism intended to destroy.
1: Destroy them, Yeah
4: these the historical institutions. And the, the reason why you do that when you are a billionaire like Elon Musk or a billionaire like Donald Trump is because you just don't want to be criticized by them, right? You, you don't want to be held accountable by people who know things um, and who, by people who are like smart and can make persuasive arguments about why what it is you're doing uh, is foolish or wrong. Um, and so... That attack and assault on American institutions, whether it be institutions of higher learning, uh, the court system, the media, etc., that to me is one of the major concerning moments in uh, in what's happening today. And I would say that what's happening in the House, like you were mentioning, uh, the folks who are the House Freedom Caucus, is, is a group of people who are fundamentally opposed to the idea of the American federal government as it has existed since the New Deal, right? So so to them, things like the Environmental Protection Agency just should not exist. Like, it just should have no role. Um, the The National Labor Relations Board should just not exist in their mind. The Education, Department of Education, should just not exist. So these are conservative reformers who might, identify you know some missteps that the EPA has made in regard to the regulation of waterways in the Pacific Northwest for example no they just want to get rid of these entities entirely that is their goal that's their stated goal um, and so in that sense they're not really interested in participating in the existing uh, institutions that sustain our democratic society today they want to destroy them. Um, and, and that's why. And,
1: and, and that, that's absolutely right. And and hence that because those institutions are also popular and the work they do is supported broadly in order to have that point of view, they have to be anti anti small D democracy at the same time. It's not but, it, it's it, you've drawn this line. So it's perfectly clear why. I mean, this is the this is the group where more than 100 of them voted against certifying the last presidential election where well, they were on the same ballot. They don't care. So so they, they 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 don't just dislike the EPA. They dislike the democracy that has given rise to it.
4: Right. And, and behind it, it, it's sustained by a kind of apocalyptic understanding of the present. Past in the future, right? That that is this kind of Tea Party narrative that it's all, you know it's five minutes to midnight, everything's about to collapse around our ears. This is where we're going to hear this in relationship to the debt um, nonstop for the next several months, right? Um, just like we heard it in the 1990s in regard to the national debt, and just like we heard it in the 1970s in regard to the national debt, right? With it, if we don't do something this year, America will be defunct, and we you know. And so that same apocalyptic rhetoric about how, you know, radical, dramatic action is necessary right now, um, and if we don't do it now, then, you know, we are doomed forever. And it maps on to the kind of evangelical, um, religious understanding of the world as well, right, Um, that we we live in a world in which there are demons and saints, and uh, we are Perched on the precipice of some massive apocalyptic moment, right where some of us will be saved and some of us will not, um, and so that that element of it is really potent and powerful for people who believe it, for people who, who live inside that that so, world. And I that, think I think we're wrong to dismiss to dismiss them as so just. You've just
1: you've made a point that I don't think anybody has made just now, and if I could put different words on it. Um, one party, um, has an ideal political ideology, you know, uh, and the other has, doesn't, it has a, it has a political eschatology. Mm -hmm. So, so we we are fighting across purposes. That's really what you're saying. And it's, it's fascinating and terrifying because I, I, it's very hard for a political ideology to beat, uh, a quasi religious eschatology.
4: Right, yeah that's true. I mean, it's far less dramatic, so you know I, who can, you know people will tune into the radio to hear people talking about you know the dramatic end times and how what Joe Biden was wearing when he gave that speech is a sign of something or other right um, and people will not tune in to a congressional hearing about. Regulatory policy in relationship to some chemical that is used in rubber production, right? Right as well, and so the political eschatology has a real pull to it um, in the entertainment world that is kind of the right-wing media ecosystem, and this is why maybe another way to think about it that the right and the left. Um, it's kind of an unfair battle when politics becomes entertainment in the sense that it's easier to communicate that apocalyptic eschatology political eschatology and get people to keep tuning in and listening um, than it is to just have a quite boring conversation about the nuts and bolts of civil procedure and governance.
1: Um, well, and right, the, right. I mean, po- politics on yeah. the one on the. On the one side, is a means towards um, um, making m- governing and how you govern and making decisions about governing. Politics, on the other side, is a means for dismantling at least democratic governance, so that you don't have to ever worry about it again. It's in the hands of some somebody who speaks, you know, for the spirit of the people. It's right. Absolutely. T- it's a, and for the first time in my life, and I, you know, what I'm. Uh, recently uh, benefit of Medicare. So that's how old I am, right. <clears throat> but for the first time in my life, a, 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 a majority of the people's house is, mm-hmm. is dedicated to stopping government so that it does nothing so that people get cynical so that we can undo the democracy. That's where we are after after a year of great victories.
4: Right. Yeah. No, I, I, and I would say, even as a historian, I would say that it's it's a it's a seed that has been nurtured since, you know, Barry Goldwater in the 60s. Uh, this anti this profoundly and radically anti-government, anti-federal government kind of a- attitude. Uh, so it's not it's not entirely new, but but it's the, the, the counterweight within the Republican Party, which was, you know, that the folks who are more interested in actual governance, of whom there used to be many in the Republican Party, um, but those voices are now relatively few. Um, and, And needless to say, I mean, it's hard to imagine anyone who's serious about governance uh, sticking around in a party led by Donald Trump for more than a few years. I think there were a few people who stuck it out who thought maybe they could use them. And, but at this point, you're just you're completely kidding yourself if you think that uh, the base of the Republican Party or the leadership of the Republican Party has any interest in doing anything with the federal government other than just dismantling it and selling it off for parts
1: yeah but i mean so you're making the point about the dismantling of the federal government and tracing it back to goldwater which i think is spot on there's a there's a because of 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 where the public opinion is now so opposed to that there's also an, an older element that goes back to jim crow that says yeah and in order to have the government we want everybody can't vote some votes are more important than others we can't be fully a democracy and get what we want. So and, and in that the parties have switched sides over 100, over 200 years, 150 years. Right. Right. Yeah. No, so Now you have in one party, both of those.
4: Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's I think that's accurate. And, and I, there's also the way that the counter-majoritarian elements that were built into our Constitution from the start. Um mm-hmm. For example, the Senate, uh, the Supreme Court, um, and now the way that uh, local districts can be gerrymandered at the state level, um, that there are all of these elements of counter-majoritarianism that were built into the system with the intention of protecting individual liberty. Usually it meant the individual liberty of wealthy white men, uh, but the, the, you could also see it as, as a genuine interest in individual, uh, the protection of individual liberty from the power of the state. Um, those counter-majoritarian elements have all kind of stacked together Through a whole bunch of contingencies like the fact that i think it's 15 of the last 17 supreme court justices have been appointed by a republican president just purely out of the accident of like when people have died and who is in
1: office um please accept a friendly amendment to that it wasn't an accident that mitch mcconnell stopped merrick Garland from being on the supreme court (laughs) so they at least stole one seat Maybe too. yeah I, I will I will acknowledge that
4: yes, but there there's also some shenanigans that happened there with, with Mitch McConnell, which is also illustrative of a general disrespect for these norms. but anyway, yep. uh, but the Senate, I mean the fact that the Senate lines up now with all these rural states, I think it's that soon seventy percent of the seats in the Senate will represent 30 percent of the population of the United States.
1: Right and a lot of bison, <laughs> maybe right. more right. bison than people at some point.
4: Grass, <laughs> right? So and, and this was, you know, and when the Republicans take advantage of this, they are taking advantage of a thing that is—they're not doing anything that runs counter to the Constitution, the actual rules of the road of our system as it was designed, um, but in ways that were never envisioned or intended by the people who designed the system um, so that it creates this incredible uh, sort of wind at the back of this party that has now become a party with seemingly not a whole lot of investment in the idea of maintaining all of the various institutions to sustain mm-hmm. the democratic society, the democratic government. And that's that's worrying. Um, but I, I so it's
5: not
1: really popular. important point though that you've just made about our Constitution. Our Constitution, um, you know, it, the first 10 amendments were really part of the initial writing of the Constitution and some of the arguing over it. But the biggest changes, the biggest, the, the biggest changes to the whole country, the most dramatic amendments are those that happened post-Civil War. Right. That, that really acknowledged that we've been through a trauma and we needed to make some fundamental changes. Um, right. I think we've been through a tra- I think we are in the midst um, of a trauma of epic proportions about who we are as a nation. And I, I, it's very hard to amend our Constitution. I think Article five is the most problematic because it's freezing this document in spite of the fact that the world goes on, our country evolves, changes, grows. Um, but there may be constitutional changes that are needed to address exactly the things that you're talking about, the the um, weirdness of the Electoral College, the, um, you know, what's going on in the Senate. I mean, I'm happy that we have the Senate we have right now. Oh, boy, am I happy we have the Senate we have right now. But I, I recognize that it's out of kilter with I mean, I, you know, I can see someday saying, look, we don't live in states, we live in municipalities. So every state, for historical reasons, can have their two senators. But any municipal area, statistical municipal area, even if it crosses state boundaries, that has more people than the average size state gets to elect a senator. Now, I don't know if Texas would have four or five <laughs> senators, but several of them would be plenty different than the ones they get running statewide.
4: Right. Yeah. I mean, so the only barrier. I and mean, theoretically, that's a great idea. I mean, the, the only barrier to that is that any amendment process has to go through the states, um, and just as you know, that the, the state sovereignty in the Senate and the, the equality of the states. So the Wyoming counts as one, and. California Council one uh, means that uh, the states who are disproportionately red today uh, would have a disproportionate amount of influence over what comes out of any convention and in fact there's a big movement on the right on the far right to initiate a constitutional convention,
1: um, right? I wouldn't want to do this by convention. That is too terrifying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Trust me. We're it, not that it broken. Not
4: turn out in the way that you, or yeah. I might We're like. not
1: that broken. Let's not let's not put everything at risk. Right. Right.
4: Right. Uh, um,
1: but there are there are you know. Um, Uh, You know, or we could be really, really uh, Darwinian and we could say, okay, every 10 years, the smallest state has to merge into its next smallest neighbor. It's kind of like (laughs) the biggest state has to split.
4: (laughs) It's like relegation, like being relegated. Um, Yep,
1: yep, yep. uh,
4: This is why, I mean, D.C. statehood and Puerto Rico statehood, you know, are ways, um, workarounds. And I was fascinated to learn in the archive just the other day, I came across a briefing book from Alec from 1979 the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is this far-right group that seeks to coordinate uh, local activity. And it was a briefing book against D.C. statehood, which was proposed in the late 1970s. Mm -hmm. Um, And the arguments in that briefing book were just uh, not very dog-whistled uh, racism. Um, and it included pieces by you know former segregationists by Pat Cannon uh, and so on, including George Will, uh, who was, I think, thought of as not a particularly radical right-winger. But, um,
1: so this but another a- Illinoisan. This has been a day, all this show, <laughs> just so you know, I, I'm not bringing that out of the blue. Names have come up of people from my state who have not distinguished yeah. themselves in the name of democracy. You know, the guy who gave Leonard <laughs> (laughs) Leo, all the money. The guy who gave Ron Johnson all the dark money. Now, uh, George will. You know, people are not helping us here.
4: Uh, Yeah. No, unfortunately. Um, This has been, uh, you know, folks on the left have been, um, you know, trying to come up with solutions to remedy uh, the kind of anti-majority, counter-majoritarian elements of something like the Senate, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, But obviously, the right and conservatives see this as something that would weaken their power. And so regardless of They're whether cor-
1: they are correct, it would.
4: Right. And it would. Yeah. And so, so yeah. they oppose it. And because of the way that our amendment process works, all they need to do is get, you know, a small handful of states to oppose it. And it's a nonstarter.
1: I'm um, I'm an optimist. I think they have overplayed their hands so terribly. And this group now in the House is so out of touch with America, not out of touch with me, but out of touch with millions of individuals. And you know what? They thought when they when they did uh, the Dobbs decision that they could just waltz in and have a constitutional amendment in Kansas. Right. Mm -hmm. And they got Mm -hmm. crushed. Right. Mm -hmm. Not by Democrats, but by Republican women. Right. So so let's let's just say that is if they get further and further out of step with the Mm -hmm. America that we all love and we all is a big question right it's a bunch of individuals but if they get that far out of step i you know what it may be a moment as defining as the 1860s and 70s
4: right no I, I mean, the mastriano the mastriano defeat in pennsylvania is a perfect example right Yeah. You know yeah I mean, this purple state uh, that was very close uh, electorally and mastriano just got killed and a the candidate. But he wasn't that great of a candidate. And Mastriano got killed by a far larger margin than Oz lost. And so yep. there were a significant number of people who went to the ballot box and voted for and Oz. These are folks who will vote for a Republican, but they just cannot yep. bring themselves to vote. Right, for the
1: even a Republican who didn't live in the state, they would vote for him, but they wouldn't go to Mastriano.
4: Yep. Right. Right. And so that, I think I think there is reason to like and the Kansas example that you gave,
1: mm-hmm. um,
4: that, that if the Republicans are punished at the ballot box uh, by voters for their extremism, then that's that that's one way out uh, of yeah. this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, Professor Cutler, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Um, yeah. our, our time is gone. I just flew by. All right.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: thanks for having- we'll have plenty to talk about as the year uh, rolls on so i i, I i'm going to call on you again thank you so much for your time
4: you bet you bet have a great day
1: take care. yep yep all right everybody that was professor Seth Kotlar from Willamette University we are going to take a break and when we come back 773-763-9278 i want to hear your thoughts now that we're in this new year
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, we are back. I'm taking your calls at 773-763-9278. So much to talk about. And let's go right now directly, let's see, to Brian calling from Albuquerque. Hey, good afternoon. Good
7: afternoon. Can you hear me?
1: Loud and clear. Yeah, I listen to
7: most. I listen to most of your show. I enjoyed all your. Thank guests. you, thank um, you. Something I wanted to point out is how small and crude our politics have gotten. And I mean, think of it this way: we went from FDR in 1932, you know, through you know, the World War II, and then Dwight David Eisenhower. We went from giants like that all the way down to Donald Trump. I mean, think of what a fall that is. And I would like to point out, I consider myself an independent. And Mm -hmm. most most Americans agree with me. We don't like either party. Mm -hmm. I would like to explain why. Okay. And I think all of our major issues and problems would be the same if every human on the planet was the same race. If everybody looked like an Indian, all of our problems would still be the same. So we don't like when everything is pushed into a racial frame i think it's a huge mistake i know liberal media has a huge black audience and they like to hear about it but i think it's a huge mistake and here's another example okay in all of our major urban areas housing affordable housing is becoming a major problem it's getting worse every year am i correct
1: yeah it's Um, a terrible problem
7: okay now Let's combine that issue with immigration. We need to do that. See, if Democrats want to win the center, the sensible center voter, they need to present workable, sensible solutions to the problems instead of just proposing things that are very, very vague, like reform. But we don't talk about what that really means. So the Democrats need to say, okay, we're going to let in three million people a year for the next ten years. And we're gonna provide housing for them. Because who is gonna provide housing for them? Most of them will not make enough money to live in one of the bigger metropolitan areas. How are they gonna survive? How are they gonna get health care? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All, all the other ancillary issues just get yep. bl- just get blurred over and skipped right over and nobody ever addresses it. You know, there have to be oh. limits and responsibilities. The Democrats don't want to talk about those. It's always about we're a welcoming society, so we're going to let everybody in. We don't talk about what the okay. limit has to be and
1: how we're going to enforce okay. the rules. So, so, so right. Okay. I hear you. I hear you. And I, I appreciate your point of view. I will say the law is the law, and, and Democrats whether it, have been enforcing that law, and uh, um, the law is not any good, and, dem- and particularly on immigration. And and there was a bipartisan solution that that um, your Senator John McCain in was very much a part of and came very close to passing until Republicans walked away that would have vastly improved the immigration um, uh, 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 all the immigration issues including the people who've been here their whole lives. And what happens at the border, but it got it got cashiered by the Republicans uh, um, when they changed their mind, but he had a deal on it, and it was again Arizona Senator who led it um, it was It was a good effort, and I need to do it again um, i don 't think there is a, a a fear on the democratic side of giving getting into specifics, um, but they don 't often happen. On the news channels, they happen. You know, in where the work gets done. And this last Congress passed specific legislation about a lot of things. I'm I'm old enough to be on Medicare, and I appreciate what they've done for the for the cost of drugs. So a lot of very specific things did happen, but um, it is absolutely reasonable for many Americans to be appalled by our politics and say I you know I'm going to just vote for the candidates I think best represent me um and and that you know in the last cycle um turned out to be okay so thank you for your call um and I'm going to move on um because boy a lot of calls today at 7737639278 i'm going to go a little out of order forgive me but you know most of my callers are have been men um so i'm going to uh mix it up a little bit and go to Beth, who's calling from Indiana. Hello. Hi there. Loud and clear. Hi.
8: Thanks for the show. Um, I just wanted to follow up on what your last guest said um, regarding um, changing the Constitution and what some of the long-term goals of these right-wingers are. And I wanted to give you the bad news that the that ALEC, the lobbying group known as the American Legislative Exchange Council, which helps write up, as you know, right wing legislation and presents it to red legislators around the state, they already have twenty seven states, according this according to the Tom Hartman show um they, he's mentioned it many times they already have 27 states or something like that signed up for a constitutional convention because they want a constitutional convention to rewrite the constitution and they want to do things like ban the existence of regulatory agencies for pollution yep. and things yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, bring yeah. back child labor maybe reinstitute the property owning part of voting something like that so it's pretty alarming
1: so so Beth, um, there's a very good book. It's about five years old now, called "Democracy in Chains." Um, I've heard it. Uh, of- at, at the end of the book, um, the, the author, who's a very good scholar, actually lists out um, uh, what the what Alec and others want to propose in that constitutional amendment, and it has all of them listed there. And it's an absolutely terrifying list. But the very good news, the great news. Uh-huh. Is that in the last few years, last five years, Democrats have won back states. So the the, the prospect of having um, a, a a minority of Americans mess with our Constitution in ways that further erode our democracy is is not as close, of course.
8: The thing I wanted to add for those who I actually heard someone in this area that I know that I like. <laughs> this person, and said something to along the lines regarding child labor of, well, then kids could work and help their families. Uh, and it shocked me that this person said that. And I want to give people a source. You know, there's an autobiography of Mother Jones, the famous elderly labor organizer who was a radical in the early part of the 20th century. And she wrote, uh, you know, her whole autobiography is very short. But it's kind of like a really long pep rally speech. You know, she tells about all her adventures of the things she did, and it's kind of incredible. But her descriptions of the children working in factories and how they were afraid to go home at night, so sometimes they'd sleep on the factory floor, and all these different things were just, it'll break your heart. And that's what should be read to any congressman or legislator that thinks they want to bring back child labor. We can't do that to our kids.
1: Um. The, the, and they don't really say they want to bring back child labor. What they say is, how can how can government tell companies what to do? I own my company. I, it's my money. Why can't I do what I want? If I want to hire someone, that's between me and the person I hire. What role is there for government in that? And there is a huge role well, for government, right? And they, we they, have they to play protect on the each thing, other. Thing
8: too. They also say, who are you to tell a parent what their child can do?
1: Right, yeah, but if you make bait, it, bait, you know, bait if bait you make, vegetable. yeah, yeah, they're, it's awful. History is full of the answers to that question if they really were interested, but they're not.
8: Well, let's remain vigilant. Um, we got some good stuff going on.
1: You bet, Beth. Thank you for your call. Yep. Okay, Jim, you're next. Uh, yeah, I'm happy know you're. Thank well, you, you too. Was- you're, they're legitimizing more of these
7: uh, people that hit the Capitol. They had one that was elected somewhere in the country. He was on TV yesterday. He was like uh, a little boy, flirting. I, I don't know. I think it was uh, the election wasn't good. They put Michael Flynn back on with a million followers. Uh, the Republicans have to take responsibility and stamp out this right-wing uh, dangerous element that's shooting up uh, electrical grids. Uh, I mean, Tim McVeigh would be their hero. I imagine Tim McVeigh and Michael Flynn would be uh, a champion today by blowing up the federal building, killing, uh, what, 200 and maiming, God knows how many people. I mean, that's where they're at. And uh, until they come to their senses and realize that, they're jeopardizing American lives all over the country. Anyway, everyone, a great show as usual, and you have a great weekend. Thank you.
1: Thank you, and thank you for your comment. Um, uh, I don't know what to make of the part of it that said Republicans have to take responsibility. I'm not going to hold my breath there. Um, Paul, you're next. Paul?
4: Hello?
1: Hello. Oh, sorry. Paul, you're
7: on. Yeah, okay, thanks. Sorry, sorry. Well, Happy New Year. Anyway,
1: Happy New Year to
7: you. Um, yeah, sorry. You know, you mentioned. You know, why this happened in the in the House of Representatives this week has to do with what what you were discussing um, with the professor. Is that these are these uh, parts of kind of the uh, antebellum perception of the Constitution that uh, this is the states' rights, and the fact is. The Republican Party of today, of the last seven years, the Trump era, they never won. Donald Trump never won presidency in terms of the people. And the Republicans in Congress, millions more people voted for Democrats again this time around than Republicans, yet they hold this slight edge. And because they don't ever – you've talked about this so many times with people like David Pepper and so on that when the Republicans don't have to deliver – They've gotten used to the idea that they should just be in control. And I think that that's why we have what we have. They don't have to win. And so it becomes this almost like ancient Roman power struggle. It's not about policies at all. None of this has been an argument about policies with the Republicans in the House. It's been really what kind of power they're going to give away to harass the Democrats. That's really what it all comes down to. Ha- Vengeance,
1: man. Vengeance. They lost. They're going to yeah, get their well, pound. Yep. What did he? Yep. What did, what did uh, Kevin McCarthy
7: say? He says he's. Wor- this is for the people. To put a check on President Biden. This. This is a party that can't. They can't figure out in a week who's they're supposed to be their their leader, and they. And he comes across like that, like oh, and and they didn't win. They didn't really win the house. They don't even really have a win. They have a majority. Yeah.
1: But well, I wish, them, I, wish them well. I wish them well. I think it's going to be chaos, and the Americans are going to yeah. decide when they see it. They're going to compare yeah. the 117th yeah. Congress, which you and I have talked about, to this yeah. clown show. It's going to be great.
7: It, well, and for the good news for you, Edwin, it's the best time to be positive, because that's what somebody said earlier, is that they, are, they want to shut things down and hope people become cynical. And, yep. you know, the cynical man is the man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And that's what they want America to become and to be positive and have faith and hope and all the kinds of positive things that you love to talk about. And that's you're more that way than I am. It's a good time to do that. But when you, you mentioned democracy and change, the 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 uh, Republican Party of today subscribes, like I said, to that antebellum. Uh, view of the Constitution, this originalist view that the power uh, is to be put in the hands of the people of the several states, and that there is no collective power of the people of the United States.
1: That they don't believe is, in it, they, but they also don't want everybody in the states to have power either. So it's that, well, you know, true.
7: It's, well, they think they can run that. You're exactly right. Yeah. They don't, they, and, but at the same time, they you, They're just like big business um big business doesn't want collective bargaining but they sure as yeah. don't want their workforce to work as a collective right can you imagine a big yeah. company that everybody running willy-nilly doing whatever they want and individual contracts? Hey, that'd be crazy
1: hey, paul, I, I, they... paul i love talk- i love talking to you but your connection isn't so good so um we'll pick it up um next time there's a lot of buzzing but thank you thank- i appreciate Sorry. it hey, brian you're next
9: Happy New Year, Edwin. Glad to have you
1: back. I'm happy to be back.
9: Great. Well, uh, first, I want to keep this really brief. Uh, uh, For those who think a true Democrat uh, and progressive cannot uh, win elections, I have in my hand the Washington Post, uh, Washington, Wednesday, November 4th, 1936. President Roosevelt is reelected in landslide. Victory may assure him all but two states. Democrats increase big majority in Congress, and New Deal will hold uh, president membership, may increase it. And, and I wanted to say that. Um, The uh, mega crowd are not, as they proclaim, uh, Christians. They are Herbert Spencer social Darwinists, which is the polar opposite of Christian ethics and practice. And I have two questions for you. One, is Gates still facing a sex trafficking charge? And two, when, if ever, do you think Trump will be charged with anything?
1: Okay, uh, Brian. Thank you for that. Um, I believe he is still—they're uh, still looking at the sex trafficking charge. Um, I don't think it's been dismissed, but um, I haven't heard anything new. So who knows how fast they're moving? Um, perhaps they aren't moving on it because all their resources have been uh, diverted to uh, moving up the chain of command for the insurrection. I, I like many, many, many Americans, am impatient um, with Merrick Garland and the justice department, but I am still confident in them. And I believe this year, um, we are going to see the terrible pain and it is terrible pain of a former president indicted. <clears throat> so I think it's going to be this year. Um, and I don't think he has a choice. I think if he commit the crimes, he's got to uh, be indicted and do the time. It's just, it's awful. And I, don't, I don't blame Garland for that. I blame Trump. All right. Um, uh, uh, let's go to Rick in Florida.
7: Rick, hi, hi. Yes. Um, well, what I wanted, I'd like to just echo what you just got done saying. This is this this is a tragedy. What's going on with with Trump and my fellow Chicagoans? I, I'm down here in Florida, but um, I just want to tell the people of Chicago. You know, we have to have hope because and and remember this, Democrats are winning elections. Hillary Clinton won the election. Al Gore won the election. President Obama was, was was a popular president and did do a lot. And whenever these Republicans come in, it's a disaster and they lose more of their own. And the only thing that they have as their base now are billionaires at the top, and people at the bottom who have no understanding of what a fascist is, who have no understanding that regulations are what protect the people and protect our republic. They All they know is that President Trump, just like Ronald Reagan, he looked presidential. He was able to trash talk. Actually, more uh, Donald Trump. But... Um, and they just go for the figurehead and emotion and for being afraid. So we, we need to keep that in mind. And the true objective here is not people like Trump necessarily, but it's and I've said this before, I'll say it again. It's the large corporations that those are the ones that are propping up. People like Trump, when when former Trump, President Trump, would used to say, "I've done more than any other president ever." I he I think he's half right in that he had done more to gut regulations and to help corporations, and those are the things that he accomplished, and 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 that's why. He's been able to weather um, all these accusations for as long as he has, but that's coming to an end.
1: And it's what I'm coming saying to an is
7: end is, yep. it, it's coming to an it's coming to an end for yep. him. But the but the the systemic problem is always going to be there, and that is these corporations that bribe politicians. Now they call it um, uh, uh, lobbying. We used to call it a bribe. Now it's called the, being a lobbyist.
1: And well, well, the, let, me, let me interrupt you uh, for a second. They're, they're slightly different sure. things. I mean, lobbying, um, everybody should be allowed to say what they think. Even corporations should be allowed to have an opinion. The flow of dark money to buy um, somebody's vote, which is what Citizens United um, unleashed, and it's mostly corporate money, is tragic and dangerous. Anyway, thank well, you I'm so good. much for your time. I'm going to move on because... We are running out of time, and there are a lot of you who have called today. So thank you. Ron, you're next.
9: Yes. uh, Now that uh, Kim McCarthy has been made the speaker, uh, so quiet and peaceful among the Republicans, but how long will this last? uh, He has to to satisfy the extremists and the moderates, and also he wants to satisfy Donald Trump because he has thought to be the next vice president.
1: Mm Mm-hmm yeah let's just accept a friendly amendment from me he has to accept the ex he has to satisfy the extremist and the slightly less extreme i don't think there are moderates in that party um, not, at least not in the house that's certainly not true across the country but the house has proven to be a dangerous uh, a, a dangerous group right now so it's i think it's very the answer to your question is not long will this unity hold up Um, And they they will not, they're not interested in governing, but the lack of unity, the fighting that they do, the name calling of everybody else is just a strategy to make us forget that we can do really good things together, as we did in the last Congress. Thank you, Ron, very much. Eddie, what's on your mind?
8: Yes. Hello?
1: Hi.
7: Hello? Yes, I'm just a Democrat that's very nervous Because I'm realizing that Nancy Pelosi was number three in line if something happened with the vice president and president. And now the question is, would McCarthy be in line if something happened?
1: Sure, he is third in line. Um, But I I think there is no credible reason to believe that something will happen to both the president and the vice president. But yes, the, the Speaker of the House... Is the third and is the second in line after the vice president? Um, should oh something happen to the president? Yeah, it's That's an important job.
3: Thought.
1: Well, I who, who would you? Who, yeah, you, you don't have a lot of good options, um, in the Republican, um, uh, uh delegation in the house, so. Yeah, we just got to wish them good health and keep moving forward. But that's a really interesting point, Eddie. I really appreciate your calling and making yeah, it. Uh, Fred, I'm going so to move to you. Happy thank you. Happy holiday to you. Fred, you're next. Oh, thanks.
6: Happy New Year. I was going to actually talk about immigration, but I actually had to bring this up because it's something I heard during the debates for the House Speaker that bothered me. It still bothers me today. Uh, one of the Republicans stood up before they uh, nominated McCarthy in whatever vote it was. He alluded to the fact that uh, Republicans are the party of Lincoln, and they are not. I think most Americans forget that um, the parties flipped in the mid-1960s, the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, and the South flipped from Democrat to Republican. Um, you can actually actually ask yourself the question— which political party today is defending their Confederate statues, their Confederate flag, their Confederate heritage? It's the Republican Party of today. But they, if you track their lineage back, they fought on the Confederate side, which were the Democrats during Lincoln. So I really, it really bothers me. I've heard it also on Meet the Press and stuff where a Republican make, would make the claim to the party of Lincoln, and I'm just screaming, no, you're not. Um, they forgot that the um a good example of the 1960 presidential election. Before that, the South, the solid South, about 13, 14 states voted solid Democrat. After that, every southern state voted solid Republican. It was simply uh, uh, because they voted as a, re- uh, as a region against um, um, the civil rights. So, but today, the yep. Republican Party is. The party of the, of the confederacy of the Democrats. So they keep getting away with that. Aware of the party of Lincoln? Sorry, you're not.
1: And uh, I, well, I you know historically Lincoln was a Republican, but they've walked away from that. Yes. I mean, you know there are a lot of people who who um, who. Uh, you know, they, 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 their grandparents would turn over in their graves if they knew what their grandkids yeah. were up to or great grandkids. Lincoln um, would uh, feel the same way about his the, the, the Republicans of today. And, and you know what? Race and civil rights is one of those reasons why Lincoln would be appalled. But the other, yeah. and, and equally important, Lincoln spent an enormous time thinking about what's a democracy and government mm-hmm. of the people by the people and for the people, and for him, that was all of the people, which is why you get civil rights um, and and he got there at the end of his life he wasn 't there all of his life um, right. but 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 the truth is what we have today in the House of Representatives, the the Republican majority in the House of Representatives does not want democracy to succeed. That's why they want chaos, because they hope that if they sow chaos, Americans will forget that we can do good together. So if you take one message from this show, go, go out and tell everybody we can do better than we're about to see from the House. Thank you all for calling. It's been a great uh, comeback for the new year. I've really enjoyed hearing from you. I think we had a great show. I will see you again next week. You take care.